Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that hopes someday when we all have to work in the Amazon warehouse because AI has taken away all of the creative jobs, that at least, here's hoping, we'll be able to bring our raccoon sidekicks to work with us, you know, for comfort, entertainment, emotional support. Maybe, they, maybe they'll tell us some good jokes or sing songs with us. Anyway, only taking the job if I can bring my raccoon sidekick. And also, when are the raccoon sidekicks being assigned to us? I just, I just need to know. Like, so, so I can make plans, buy some raccoon food. <laughs> I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 193. And yes, today we're going to be talking about AI and how it impacts creative jobs like print design, graphic design, and so much more. My guest today is Erin Cadigan, someone I have known since the early days of my career. She was literally born to be an artist. She has been making art her entire life. Currently, among many things she does, she is the print designer for The Hippie Shake, a slow fashion brand based in the UK. Erin and I are going to talk about how AI impacts the world of print design and really all creative jobs. I was inspired to put together this episode after a controversy erupted last month involving Selkie, a brand I have mentioned many times on this podcast, but really... While the Selkie Valentine's Collection controversy started this all for me, I've been on a whole journey of learning more about generative AI and and its implications, as well as how it is being used as a tool by various brands out there. So sometimes I'm really thrilled when things like this come up that I don't know a lot about because it forces me to learn about it. This is not a tech podcast, okay, but we're going to do our best in this episode to explain how it works and what the impacts are. Before we get started, I recommend that you read up on the Selkie AI situation because it will be referenced quite a bit in this episode, although like to be clear, this episode is not specifically about Selkie, but because it was the jump off for all of it and it started a lot of good conversation just like out there in the ether, we are going to be talking about it here and there. I'm going to be sharing a great TechCrunch article that explains the story. It's very easy to read. It's not super techy and confusing and jargony or anything like that. So you might want to pause right now and go read that article. Or if you reach a point in this episode where you're like, what the heck are they talking about? Just go give that a quick read. I don't want anybody to feel that I am picking on Selkie in this episode because I've actually been a longtime fan of the brand. I was actually the buyer who launched Selkie at Newly before anyone else was offering it. Like I was at market and a sales rep was like, hey, do you want to see this new line? And I, aesthetically, it was just like love at first sight for me. It was unlike anything else I had seen and it was so appealing to me in so many ways. And, you know, the brand does many good things. They offer a lot of sizes. They use models of many different ages, races, and sizes. They even produce in small batches and sometimes even kind of like on demand rather than overproducing. And these are great things in my book. But the AI controversy did bring some other issues to the surface that, you know, they're worth discussing. Next, I'm going to tell you that this episode is long, like all caps, L-O-N-G. But as always, I have broken it up into pieces so that you can listen to it over a period of days if you like. I know some of you go straight through. 
Others break it up. Basically, every time there's an ad break or a shift in segments, that's your cue that it would be a good time to take a break if that's what you want and not feel confused when you jump back in. I do that actually in every episode. So I just wanted to explain it this week so you know. Okay, originally I had planned a long intro explaining what generative AI is, how it works, and what the impacts of it are. But as I was editing my conversation with Aaron, I heard myself mentioning Dustin, aka my husband, over and over again because he and I have spent so much time discussing the social and economic implications of generative AI. So I decided that rather than a long monologue for me, it might be more interesting to hear all of that from me and Dustin. So let's get things started with a special cameo from Dustin. So Dustin, you know, this week's episode is all about AI art and most specifically, we're talking about AI art in print design, but kind of just as in, a, in general as art and the commercial uses of AI art. My guest this week is Erin Cadigan, who is a print designer for a brand you you would really appreciate their aesthetic. They're called the Hippie Shake, and it's very like on point, like 60s, 70s rock and roll vintage. In our conversation, your name came up a lot because what I know about AI and its commercial applications uh, comes from you and conversations I've had with you, but also because I felt like, you know, like a year ago when AI art became something that everybody was talking about, you and your friends were really like fucking around with it a lot, right? And like trying, trying stuff with it. Um, So I thought, yeah, I was like, you know what, let's just get Dustin in here, just talk for a few minutes about his experiences with AI, like thoughts on AI, Um, so I thought we'd start by just like talking about how AI works and earlier I was like, could you explain it? And you said like, well, maybe not. So I should. I, I wasn't sure exactly. I like, I know the loose concept and that it scans for everything and then it pulls stuff in, but I don't know exactly like what that means. Right. And so I, you know, I felt like, like I know about as much as you and I know that it, it's sort of like. The term that comes up a lot is it scrapes. It scrapes the internet and data and just sort of like a, a database of of existing art and images and kind of reconfigures it. Um, but I figured, you know, a lot of close horse listeners probably know about as much as we do, or maybe even less. Maybe this is just something they've heard like sort of buzzing around lately. So I searched the internet for an explanation that would make sense. And I actually ended up on the explain like I'm five subreddit, which was exactly what I was looking for, where someone asked, can you explain to me like I'm five years old, uh, how does generative AI work, especially in regards to art? And I found a pretty good explanation from a user named just your typical nerd. So we know they're going to be really, this is going to be a good explanation, right? And they said, Let's say I ask you what a sheep is. You know what a sheep is. So then I ask you to draw a picture of a sheep. This is because you've seen a sheep before. You know what it looks like, so you can try to replicate it. You can also learn new things. So let's say I ask you to draw an aardvark, but you've never seen an aardvark. So your drawing won't be that good. But the more times you see an aardvark, the better your drawing will be. This is a core concept of machine learning. We have a robot where we show them the word sheep aardvark, et cetera, and then show them a picture of that thing. After seeing thousands and thousands of pictures, the robot eventually begins to learn how it works. 
We can do the same for artwork too. Maybe we'll show it a type of art, watercolor, abstract, geometric, etc., and give it the title of the art and then show it the actual art piece. Then after repeatedly seeing thousands of pieces of art, it understands how to make it. We give it the same things to start, let's say geometric as the type and cardinal as the title, and it'll spit out something that it thinks fits best. And I thought I thought that was pretty good, right? I mean, it's yeah. still it's it, it feels like very heady, but basically AI learns this visual vocabulary and how to create based on that, but it has to have a source. Yeah, I mean, everything that you see with it is is that and scraping that it can't do it until it knows like what that is. And so you have played around with at least one AI platform, right? Which which ones have you used? Uh, well, the first one was like with that dolly that was the yeah first that one. was the first one, and that was the one that you know like whenever it first appeared, it was really amusing because you know it would just you just threw into it the most nonsensical thing, or at least with my uh, group of friends, you know, <laughs> we're like throw the most ridiculous thing you could into it and see what would happen, and it you know wasn't it was wasn't something that we thought of as like a serious thing but it'd be like you know like put alf and mr belvedere on the love boat you know and then see what it how it interprets or like a garfield in a white bikini at Firefest. yeah you know yeah. yeah yeah so it was kind of just like a novel thing and it was amusing right yeah. and then like and and this is something that aaron and i talk about in our conversation um it kind of takes a turn where suddenly AI is no longer a source of amusement. It's this like wildly lucrative industry. Isn't this how it always goes? Right? So you've used some of these platforms. And as far as I can tell, you kind of like type in prompts, sort of like the way just your typical nerd explained it on Reddit, right? Yeah. And so could you, if you were saying like, I want to see a picture of Alf and Mr. Belvedere on the love boat, you could add a, like an added layer where you could say like as a watercolor, yeah, right? Yeah, or yeah. you could take it further as as a watercolor by such and such an artist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's depending on the platform, there's like you can go and find lists of artists, and because a lot of them will have different um, versions of the AI that you can call up. Um, you know, like version five, version six, whatever, and they'll interpret this differently. And so there'll be like this giant list. And this is what, by the by this by the time you start seeing things like this, it starts getting kind of scary because it would be like all these artists, and then what them typing the same prompt into in the and using the different versions, how it would render. So you could see how this was going to spit something back out before you did it, because that way you weren't using. You know, you could see, look on there and see how close that it might be to what your desired result was, which was really, really terrifying because it wasn't just like Picasso or Leonardo. It was like contemporary comic book artists. Yeah, it was like people who are living right now and trying to make a living as artists, right? And that that part was really chilling. I for you and I were messing around, and I was like asking you to pull up some like artists that I knew from the '90s that were sort of like comic book artists, right? And it was uncanny. Yeah, like like you could say, okay, I want, I want Mr. Belvedere and Alf on the love boat at, as drawn by the Hernandez brothers or something. Yeah. Like it was. 
Adrian Tamin, like everybody like that was on there. And that and but but what was even crazier was it wasn't even just because you know, like I can understand somebody who's like maybe a couple decades who starts a couple decades back thinking there was enough um material that it had already scraped. But this had like way more almost contemporary people that were like people who are currently making digital art and are kind of like smaller like active working artists right now who are not rich and who are not like making a fortune off of prints or like in museums and like who are actual like contemporary working artists is really it was shocking to me actually Mm -hmm. um and it turns out it's like tens of thousands of artists at this point that have been folded into these ai platforms so here's the thing like i think uh, like as i mentioned ai art and just it's called you know generative ai has become like highly lucrative or at least it's the latest fast cash that investors are chasing i think like it could be like remember when like co-working spaces we're gonna make everyone gazillionaires like mm-hmm. it's a, there's always something right i'm sure i can think of like 50 other things we've seen come and go that it turned out really didn't yeah they were just hype right but the fact is that there is money changing hands here. So as far as I can tell, and you, you, you can tell me if I'm wrong, how these platforms make money, right, is that they charge you, the person using the platform to create art, they charge you a fee, right? You pay to get, basically to get server time is the way that it works. Because I've only had access to one that was that way, and it was for some work stuff. Um Part of it was uh, the art director was like, was using it so that when they were doing mock-ups for pages and stuff, that instead of hunting for stock photos that they would eventually get replaced by like real photography, they could use that to generate kind of what they wanted to see there to, so that like clients were seeing stuff that was closer to the end result earlier on by just being, you know, like, two people hugging kitchen there you go now you you got that you dropped it into that file so that there was something there instead of going and hunting on a stock photo site for 20 minutes you know to find the right thing a lot of it was for stuff more like that than like you know alpha mr belvedere you know (laughs) as drawn by steve ditka or something so i have a question so you're saying like basically you are as the customer paying for like the server time or that that's that's how it's conveyed Mm -hmm. does that mean then you're not really paying for the end result so someone else could type in the exact same prompt as you and possibly have the same exact final product yeah uh, that's i i that seems plausible i have a feeling that it's a little more roll of the dice so okay in a situation where you as the customer going in there to use this to generate some, I mean, in your case, like what you're doing for work, like this placeholder photo. So no one ever, the company really didn't make money off of it. The the AI service did, but like, you know, they weren't, this wasn't a final product that someone sold for money, right? But ultimately, if you had gone in there and said, like, I actually want all these placeholder images that are going to be on the website that are inspired by like artists that already exist, Right. The artists who were referenced wouldn't get a cent of that. Oh, no. no, Right. And that's like one of the issues here. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like a multifold issue, right? Because it's like, one, people's art and creativity and unique style are being monetized, but not not by the artist, right? Right. Um, Two, 
you could then take that finished product and make money off of it. Mm-hmm. And three, possibly someone else could end up with the same work as well. So, oh, and then four is that like people, companies could use this to replace creative employees, mm-hmm. right? And I think the more it gets used, the smarter it gets, right? Mm-hmm. And there are all kinds of forms of AI at this point. Like, obviously, we're right now talking about, like, the more graphic art-driven. But there are, I mean, I'm sure if any of you use Google Drive or Gmail it, and many other platforms at this point, there are now options to have AI just completely write what you are working on. Even in something as simple as an email. And the thing is, like, all of that writing is sourced from all the writing that's on the internet, right? And so the more people use AI and adjust it and kind of give the feedback, the smarter it gets. And the theoretically over time, the more difficult it would be to spot real human created content versus AI. I I don't know. I when it comes to like written AI stuff, I feel like it is always blatantly AI. It's. I mean, at this point, it is right now. But it could change. Yeah, I mean, I have I have a, a friend in in our one of our group chats. He often using the Bing AI because he kind of feels like it's. Well, there's an ongoing joke just about using Bing in general, um, whatever. But uses Bing AI to generate fake like scripts in in this chat based on various friends and and just dumb dumb ideas, and it's just the worst in every possible way. But he's also, I believe, using Bing specifically because it's, you know, not a high quality one. But but still, like, it's it's utterly abysmal when it spits out, which is makes it hilarious in this context, you know, for it writing a script about our friend Jeff and the uh, character Bazooka Joe from the Bazooka gum from more kids like but it yeah and it's just stupid what it spits out but with enough time and enough data it probably could but but the thing about the thing ultimately that i think is not terrifying necessarily but just bad is the idea that like if all that it's doing is recycling stuff that exists and there's no money to be made off of new stuff then like nothing like then there's no there's nothing new you know and i think that's the real like as as it becomes sort of a closed loop essentially by cutting off creative work but i mean that's obviously like a very long time coming till anything like that seems even remotely plausible i mean i don't know dustin you know i think that like in the past we've sold we've been the narrative around ai has been like we need to be uh, afraid that the machines will rise up you know, like, that's what The Matrix is, right? And, like, a million other movies and television shows. It's always been, like, the problem is that the AI is going to get so smart it's going to kill us all, right? What if instead what AI really does is it just takes away every remotely creative job that exists out there? And it doesn't have to be graphic designer. It doesn't have to be copywriter. I mean, like, honestly, people who do, like, analysis of data are actually doing a lot of, like, creative thinking. You know, like, what if it takes away every potential creative job that exists out there and all we're left with is like working at the Amazon warehouse because is maybe that's the dystopian future that AI could represent to us rather than they like the machines rise up and then we're all in the matrix like I think that there's there's something concerning about that and it could be a long time off I guess it kind of depends like what 
the uh, what our tolerance for mediocrity is. Yeah. Right? Because I have seen a- AI tools being used pretty pretty heavily, at least in like the retail environment right now, where it's like, at my last job, they didn't want to spend money on a website. They certainly didn't want to spend money on a copywriter. And so what they started doing was using AI copy for every product page. And to me, it was very clearly AI written. It was an improvement over nothing. I also questioned whether customers would even read it. But I guess my my thought there was like, why don't you just spend money to hire a copywriter? If your business, you know, which is like a many million dollars business can't afford the budget for a copywriter, like maybe your business model isn't good, right? But I see this happening a lot where people are like, oh, what's sort of like, I guess it's like the difference between like a white lie and a real lie or whatever, where they're sort of like, it's sort of like the white lie version of using AI, where it's like, well, no one really cares about product copy anyway. But I have a, I have a couple examples I want to get your, your thoughts on, where to me, they're more serious. Okay? Okay. So one thing we're going to talk about in this episode is a brand that you know I love, which is Selkie. And there was a huge... Well, if I said dust up, I think that minimizes it. People were very, very upset when it turned out that the Valentine's Day collection was was created using AI. And how do you feel about brands using AI in, in place of print designers? I mean, I think it's just stupid. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, like the whole argument with with Selkie, which I'm gonna I'm not gonna tell you all about it right now because it'll come up in the episode. Selkie's defense of it was like, hey, there is no uh, print designer at at Selkie. It's all the founder. It's all her work. And so if she uses AI to create designs, like who cares? She's it's not taking a job away from someone. And I'm like, okay, fine, yeah, makes sense. Um, but like. You know, it's we're probably about five minutes too late for the fact that probably Shein is using AI oh, yeah. prints every freaking day, and I'm I bet Target will be soon, and Walmart. And honestly, like as a person who's worked in this industry for a really long time, I've seen such mediocre prints over the last decade because I could tell people were just copying prints that already existed, right? So to me, it seems like. How much will customers tolerate that? Like, when are you going to be like, like what Dustin said, where it kind of gets to a point where nothing is interesting anymore because it's just the same thing. I mean, <laughs> I feel like, you know, in the eternal race to the bottom, like you don't think it can get any worse and then it does. Yeah. Yeah. And then we just like kind of get used to it being bad. And so it doesn't mm-hmm. seem worse. Okay. So the other one is, which I'm going to talk about more later in this episode with, with Aaron was this cosmetics brand who uses AI for all of their packaging. Now, they like spun it in a lot of different ways where it seems as though like they take a bunch of different AI sources and they like collage it all together, which everybody is like, so see, it's fine. And I'm gonna tell you, Dustin, it is so blatantly AI art that I, uh, I, I, I honestly am taken aback by it. And, you know, like, you know, I know you don't buy a lot of makeup. But you know a lot about product design and packaging. And makeup is definitely one of those categories, like a lot of things we buy as consumers, where it's the packaging mm-hmm. that sells it. And in fact, the packaging often costs more than the product itself that's inside it. And like that's the packaging design, the art is like mm-hmm. what tells the story. So I'm, I'm showing you some of this right now. It's like so obviously AI, right? I mean, it looks like, yeah, like it, 
most likely is, but you know. It, well, I mean, it, sh- the owner admitted it is. Yeah, yeah. So. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, I'm just saying. Like, if I glanced at it, I would just as- would assume it's either AI or bad design. <laughs> Yeah, to me, honestly, like, the packaging is not a selling point. It kind it's, of is, like, off-putting. not good. Right. But anyway, it's beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So right. here's why I wanted to show you this and ask you this. Because you actually design packaging for people. Mm-hmm. You design T-shirts. You know, mm-hmm. I'm sure if someone asks you to design a print, which, by the way, print design is, like, a very specific skill set. Because in addition to having to be obviously very talented and have a deep understanding of color. You have to also understand how pattern repeats. Yeah, pattern repetition, it gets gnarly. And how it it translates three-dimensionally, right? So it's like way more complicated. But you've designed some really sick packaging over the past couple years. And I just like wondered how you would feel about being cut out of the equation and people just being like, oh, we use some AI. I mean, it's just, it, it's just stupid. <laughs> like, I mean, I like wish I had something more insightful, but I just said, I'm just like, this is dumb. Why did you do this? Like, like, okay, I get that you th- want to act like you don't have money to, for this or that, but like, there's plenty of ways to like, have a real person do this. Like, you know, like that, it, it's just stupid. Well, I think it comes back to something that, I mean, you and I have talked about this about this a lot. It's been on my mind for quite some time, is how we as humans currently prioritize physical stuff. We assign way more value to that than any creative output, right? So, like, we would rather buy an eyeshadow palette. We would assign more value to that than like a, a, I don't know, a painting of that art even, Mm. right? That's on the package. We, you know, we've talked about this, like people don't want to pay for podcasts. They don't want to pay for television shows. They don't want to pay for movies. uh, They don't want to pay for music, Mm -hmm. right? And it's kind of like fast fashion. It has become fast everything and it extends beyond like physical stuff. Mm. It extends into art, right? Um, And so I feel like a lot of these companies are sort of like, well, we'll save money and be more profitable by cutting out the the artsy person, the creative talent, right? The thing that concerns me about that is that, you know, there was part of me for a long time that was like, AI is never really going to catch on as like a commodity, as like a means of replacing creative professionals. I definitely thought that like a year ago and maybe even six months ago. But for example, like this makeup brand reading through their comments, I will say the vast majority of people were like, well, I don't want to buy from you anymore. Like you should pay artists, right? But then there were people who said, "Uh, I don't want to pay higher prices just so like there could be an artist involved. Like the one person was like, if I have to pay $5 more, I'm not going to. Yeah. And that really disheartened me because Mm -hmm. I saw with the whole Selkie thing, most people who, or at least the people who were being most vocal about it on social media were like rightfully just like, I don't know if I want to support this brand anymore. But then people would turn around and be like, I bought everything from this drop. You know, like they they just seem Mm -hmm. to be like, who cares? Well, a lot of people are if they don't have any connection to like creative industries or anything like that there's just like a disconnect where it's like they don't understand and it it, it it's really frustrating sometimes to 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 see that because like people just don't get it they're like oh you just make stuff up 
for your job. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. no, that's. Like, and it's hard. It's really freaking hard. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, I think that like we're all due for a big reset on how we think about that kind of stuff. But I feel like if we don't have that reset, then AI is just going to keep going. Yeah. Something else that I have seen come up when people are sort of, it's not like they're rallying in support of AI, but they just like don't, I don't know. Sometimes I think people will do just about anything in order to be able to just buy stuff <laughs> like and feel okay about yeah. it. So people were like, and this is going to bother you. I'm going to tell you right now. People were like, well, graphic designers and artists use computers right now anyway. They're not real artists like drawing stuff. And I will tell you that today's guest, Erin, she actually draws all of all of the prints by hand, like on paper. But I actually would say, like, I've seen you draw by hand just on a computer, you know, <laughs> like, like all the people I know who are graphic designers, uh, digital artists, uh, print designers, etc., package designers, you name it, are actually like physically drawing constantly and creating with their hands anyway. It's just a different uh, medium, right? Mm -hmm. And so to me, the fact that people make art on computers right now is not analogous to using AI. No, it's not at all. Because <laughs> like, you know, I like if I'm drawing something and I'm using a pad on the computer to draw it, it's because the end result is going to be digitally replicated or something like that, you know. And so that's the way that it's done. I would love, absolutely love to not to be able to to do design work minus a computer more often. I, you know, have a lot of tools of that time period and, and have collected a lot of stuff, you know. Um, but the problem is, is that since everything has to be replicated digitally, you know, that's just not feasible. Right, right. I mean, even, you know, like you, you could theoretically, like if you really wanted to go deep in like screen printing, like draw the transparencies and stuff. But half the time, if you're, you know, they're they want everybody you know it's a digital file that everybody's going to export yeah, from yeah. so like you know you're by drawing on the computer you're skipping the middleman because otherwise you would like draw by hand scan in and then do that so you know it's the yeah it's stupid <laughs> there it, you, you the, heard it first it's stupid yeah end result or verdict it's stupid well you said something a while ago which i actually like cited in my conversation with aaron you said like you know robots, artificial intelligence, were supposed to give us more time to make art. And now it's turning out that they're just taking away making art from yeah. us. How how sad is that? Because I was thinking, you know, I, I do believe, I want to be optimistic here, that AI will hit a wall where it's going to turn out that like good art and in all forms, music, film, writing, visual art, uh, needs needs the human component to be good, right? I I like to think that we're going to reach a point where it's just like people are like, this is kind of a flop because we need the humanity to make it good. And I think about how on Star Trek, a lot of the AI, you know, I had to bring it up. A lot of the AI, let's say data, right? He's an android. The AI is always trying to learn how to be more like a human, that it's the humanity that is the missing piece that they strive for. And, you know, certainly back when people were writing the next generation and writing yeah. uh, data, they would have never thought that there could be a time like 30 years later where suddenly maybe a whole television show could be written 
by AI. I still don't believe it's possible. But it would be so bad. It would be so bad. But I think even then, when people weren't fully understanding how AI would work or what its applications would be, uh, they knew then, even then, that like there's just there's like a, some secret ingredient that is hum- that makes humanity what it is that AI could never replicate. If it, if you want to think about it in a way, there's like the idea of using it to generate packaging, commercial art, quote unquote. Right. You know, like which is just meant to serve a purpose to be a thing on a box, versus like you know, does anyone actually think that they're going to use it for like some sort of fine art, you know, like, and if so, like, is what's the intent or emotion there? Because if you remove, like, the emotion or feeling from art, then, you know, what's the point? Because even if you're making commercial art and packaging, theoretically, you're still wanting to cause an emotional response. Like, you want somebody to see something, feel something and pick it up. And so if no one has that you can't input that into ai like mm-hmm. you know like because you could tell it what you think somebody will see and have th- that feeling but there's a difference between that and like understanding like if they see this this is the feeling that they that that will cause within them and that's a really different way of looking at it that yes you can you know tell it okay i want 70s inspired fairy drawings that look like a bootleg Mark Ryden um, on this box, but like, and it will will get you there, but like that might not be what causes the actual feeling that you want somebody to have when they look at it, but that's all that you can think of Mm -hmm. that you think will get you there. What's true because a lot of, a lot of times what really pushes someone over the edge and creates that emotional connection is kind of, you can't you can't explain it in words. I mean, I'm sure you find this with clients where they like they want something, but even they can't articulate what it is mm-hmm. because you just like you know it when you see it. And yeah. I don't think you can teach AI to know it when you see it. You know, like whatever that quality is. Well, because it can only go to what you've just said. It won't think about it and think, well, from that, maybe you would like something more like this. Mm-hmm. It's the way, like, often whenever I'm working on stuff, one of the first rounds of things, I will go way too far in sort of the weird zone. Like, I will take something a little bit further out to – and the way that I always phrase it is, like, I'm trying to figure out where the edges are. Mm -hmm. Like, and then from there, pull it back towards the center. But with any, like, AI thing, when you're just putting that in, you're starting very much at the center, at, like, the most basic, here's the exact – like, we said we wanted to see – you know, like a spider, two rocks, and a cigarette. And that's exactly what's there, you know? Right. Like, you're just saying these exact parameters and that's it. And there's no actual creative thought that goes into that other than, well, you know, for whatever weird reason, somebody wants that. Yeah, who, who's this person? I don't person? know. I don't know. It's like, it's like, it's, it's avant package. It's very avant <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's like, it's, it's cool. You'll, it's cool. Yeah, you'll, it's you'll like it when you see it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. It's like a lot more complicated, but I do think that unfortunately it's up to us as, as just people in the world to not accept the things that don't connect to us, you know, like 
obviously not everything in our lives is going to elicit an emotional response from us. Like, you know, a pair of black tights is like, it is what it is, right? Like, you're not going to be like, oh, the packaging on that is really, really sold it to me. You're probably going to be like, I needed tights. These were the right price. They were there in my size and you buy them. But I do think like brands that are trying to play off of this idea of like connecting with us on an emotional level and they're just selling us like garbage, we got we got to stop being okay with that. Well, I mean, like a, like a like brand like in a design thing like vacation. That's like the opposite of something that even though like in a way that's so narrow of a scope that like you could AI conceptually something like that, but that's something that somebody had to have real vision to actually be like, no, we're gonna go exactly to this spot and do that, you know, instead of. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think like with vacation, y- you see how someone builds a brand yeah. and it, they build it by what inspires them visually. Mm-hmm. And I think even with the Selkie thing, like, do I love that she used AI to create those prints? No. But I will say that looking at those prints, they are exactly what I think of as Selkie and they were really on brand for her. Um, so I don't feel as upset about it i do wish she would have paid someone that that one's a really interesting case because it is somebody who was already making that using that tool yeah exactly and, exactly. and it gets complicated because you know like i i you know have have played with it a little bit and and tried to see because you know it's one of those things where if everybody's talking about it and it feels scary to not know what that is you know and what it can do because you know i I think that there are potential use cases for it um you know like the way that i've used it occasionally for um whenever i was working on something and i couldn't find a reference photo for i wanted things arranged a certain way whenever Mm -hmm. i was drawing t-shirt art i couldn't find an animal posed a certain way to pull from so i used it to generate a reference photo to work off of Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I like, that's the part of me that's like, okay, that could be really cool. I think that when we start putting like specific artists names into it, or we start using the final output as like a commercial product, that's where it becomes really problematic to me. Yeah. To being able to generate something that looks exactly like somebody else. Like I get why if you're not an artist, that would be really fun To, 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 you know, someone who can't, you know, can't draw like or whatever, like, um, the idea of typing in something and getting something out would be, would feel really fun. You know, I, I, I do get whenever you see stuff like that and people are like this, this thing I made, you're like, gets a little weird, but you know. Yeah, I guess it's, yeah. I mean, that's a whole other thing. Cause there are a lot of AI artists who are building like huge followings on Instagram yeah. or at least were six months ago. They might not be now because I think this, the tide has turned in terms of like general, at least online, like general feelings about AI, specifically when it comes to art. Um, But I would see people making really cool stuff. And, you know, if they were just typing in a bunch of stuff and this was the output and they posted it and they're not making any money off of it, in an overall sense, I'm like, well, whatever. Although the more we feed the AI, the better it gets. So maybe we shouldn't do that. Um, But then I know that there are people who use it as a jump off and build upon that, you know, using using other programs and whatnot. Like, so it it's complicated. Where I have a problem with it is like where it replaces creative 
workers because that it is hard enough to make a living as a creative. Nobody values your work somehow, but they need it. They always need it. That's the thing. All these brands, they don't want to pay money for copywriters. They don't want to pay money for graphic designers. They don't even want to pay money for like designers of like the clothing and stuff, but they have to because there's no, there's no skipping over that part of it. And now it might be giving them the ability to do that. That's what's scary to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is the idea for them to at least be able to think that they can do that enough to like run with that for a while till everything look like looks terrible. But then it comes down to are people willing to just be fine with it? It looks terrible because things cost less. But here's the thing. None of those places are gonna, like they're not going to suddenly. Oh, we saved all this money by not having a creative department in virtually any aspect anymore and pass the savings on to you. No, like th- <laughs> Definitely not. that will never happen. Yeah. Yeah. But that they will never will happen. Make, you know, more profit and that's that, you know, and it's, it's. Someone posted on threads last week. I, I can't remember who it was, but I was laughing at it. And she was, she was like, you know, someday we're all going to be working at the Amazon warehouse together. And I'm going to be side-eyeing all of you <laughs> who were supporting Amazon all along. And that made me really laugh. But, like, I also was like, yeah, fuck. It's so true because it just seems like we – I think it can be easy to be like, well, whatever. Everything sucks and it's all over for all of us. And, like, we might as well just, like, accept defeat from the corporate overlords. But actually, like, if we don't buy stuff, they'll stop making it. And furthermore – when I see what happened with Selkie, there was so much outcry. People, she was like, I'm never using AI again, mm-hmm. right? Um, this makeup brand that uses AI for its packaging, I, I don't have, a, I'm going to tell you, I don't really know this brand very well, but just based on everything I read online, because I went down a rabbit hole, there's something about this makeup brand that I, I find very untrustworthy. <laughs> I guess that's the best. So I don't, I don't know. I don't have an emotional connection to them, but they were like, okay, well now we're going to start collaborating with artists. So great. Like we do have that power here. And I think that it's just really important for us to remember that. Yeah. Unless you want stuff that sucks, we got to stand up for what's right. Yeah. Um, I think that everybody should go to AI now and have it generate a script for a uh, movie where everyone has to work in an Amazon warehouse because AI took all the jobs except for the Amazon warehouse. I mean, I kind of, I, I yeah, I want to read those. I thought they're going to be really funny. Like everybody should, you know, yeah, and yeah like and each one, everybody should you know put their own their own spin on it, or like maybe they have like you know a raccoon sidekick or something. There you go. Yeah, I mean, always a raccoon sidekick if you're going to go work at the Amazon warehouse. Um, well, thank you, Justin, for taking some time to talk about AI with us. Sure. You know, I always get nervous about having you on because I don't want it to be like when Neve has his wife on Catfish. Yeah, those good. episodes are terrible. They're terrible. But I hopefully you are you got more Riz than her. I don't know. I'm, I'm no Cammy. <laughs> it's true. You're no Cammy. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> Thanks again to Dustin for letting me drag him into my office to talk about AI. I want to be clear that outsourcing creative work, copywriting, graphic design, music, you name it, to AI will only exacerbate economic inequality. Artists are already underpaid and struggling. 
All of my friends who are print designers, graphic designers, etc., are actually incredibly talented artists and makers who have found a way to make a living via their creative skills. But they are often underpaid and overworked, all for the sort of like privilege of a creative career. If companies can cut those roles and increase profitability by using AI to design packages and emails and prints for clothing and textiles, they will do it. I've already seen so much cutting of creative staff over the span of my career, and not just in the design department, also visual merchandisers, display builders, copywriters, stylists. For so long, companies have just decided that they will have less interesting stores or less compelling styling on their websites if it means cutting costs and raising profitability. But certain things like graphic design and product design have been non-negotiables. Like they have to do it. They have to spend the money on it in order to have stuff to sell. I mean, they are still buying samples to copy and they're copying prints from vintage garments, but they still need creative talent to pull it all together to produce the stuff, right? And if they can find a way to skip that and save even more money, they will. And let me tell you, using generative AI to come up with a print or packaging is way cheaper than paying someone a salary. And as Dustin said, they will not pass those savings onto the customers. They will be effectively transferring the wages they have been paying to creative workers to the wealthy executives, investors, and shareholders. This is a no-win situation for the working class as a whole, whether you work in a creative job or you work in a warehouse. This impacts all of us. Whew, I know, that's dark, right? We'll try to end this episode on a brighter note, I promise. <laughs> okay, now let's transition into my conversation with Erin because I am so excited for you to meet her. Okay, Erin, why don't you introduce yourself to everyone? Okay, hi, I'm Erin Cadigan. I am a working artist in several creative fields, um, but I believe I was invited uh, to speak with Amanda today because of my textile design work. I am the head uh, surface designer for a brand out of London called The Hippie Shake, and I do their knitwear design, their embroideries, appliques, all their prints uh, for their for their line. Um, I personally, I like love the hippie shakes aesthetic. Their stuff is so good. Uh, so yeah, Naomi's brilliant. So good. That's the owner. Yeah, she's she's like. I mean, I wish that I had half of her Instagram, like motivation or chops <laughs> or whatever. Because I'm just like, ugh, I finally gave up this summer. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, it's its own thing, for sure. <laughs> it's like a full-time job in itself. So I thought we'd start by talking about, like, how did you get into fashion and start designing prints? Is this, like, something you'd wanted to do when you were a kid, or yeah. did it just kind of happen? Yeah, well, I used to own a rock and roll, psychedelic rock and roll hotel that I had bought a completely distressed and destroyed property here in Woodstock, New York, and like fully designed and built um, this four suite plus two additional suites off-site um, rock and roll hotel called the White Dove Rock Hotel. And I had designed all of like the wallpapers and textiles and done like faux paint. It was really, really fun. Um, and I uh, 
going to pat myself on the back and go ahead and say that it was like not cheesy. Like so many people would come in and be like, oh my God, I thought this was going to be like <laughs> those awful, like Johnny Rocket Diners or something. But like, I specifically, you know, tried to make it look like, you know, if this specific rocks rock star was living here, what wow. would the environment they lived in look like based on like their clothing and their album covers and stuff. I didn't want it to be like, Oh, there's a purple, you know, Jimi Hendrix portrait on the wall. Um, so Naomi, the owner of the hippie shake and the head designer, um, she, she was a vintage dealer and she had found my hotel to come and shoot a lookbook at. And then six months after she had come, she contacted me and was like, look, we want to start our own like first run, you know, self-designed clothing, but um, based on vintage silhouettes. (laughs) And we thought we'd be able to find dead stock or maybe something on market, but nothing looked authentically vintage, but you know, everything you did at the hotel looks authentically vintage. Cause that actually is kind of like my illustration style. Um, and so she asked if I would design a textile for her and our first collection, which came out in spring of 2019 was one floral in three colorways and a t-shirt. And now we're like, you know, like five prints and appliques and embroideries and knitwear and all this. It's been pretty fun. That's awesome. Yeah, they are so unique out there in comparison to just anything else I see, which of course, we're going to talk later about this, but I assume that that opens them up to tons of copying. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I do think that... um, the way that I work is like, I mean, I'm like over here using like tracing paper (laughs) and like pencils and stuff, you know? Um, And so there are a lot of similar brands. It's hard for me to say if they came before or after. I know there's a couple that were prior, but they weren't really print heavy. Mm -hmm. I know there are some that seem to have come since, But I do think that we stay ahead of the pack for one, because of Naomi's like really amazing eye and mood boards and like where we're going next, but also because I really am not in any way, shape or form like a computer generated artist. It's very done the way that people did shit in the seventies. And I think that that just carries through and keeps us a little ahead of the pack. Yeah, I think you can see the difference. You really can. I mean, obviously, like, I spend my whole day, every day, plugged into a computer, and my my husband is a designer, and he also is, but there's still also a lot of, like, on his end, like, actual physical drawing. Um, And I think Mm -hmm. it's, like, in sharp contrast to what we're going to talk about today, which is, like, how AI is kind of... I don't know, taking, as my husband said, I thought computers were supposed to, and you know, technology was supposed to give us more time to make art. And instead what it's doing is taking away our ability to make art. So that's really stuck with me since he said that, because it's, it's true. I went to a very small high school in the Jersey Shore area, Point Pleasant Beach. And uh, I was just kind of handed the keys to the art closet because I was really good at art. And I like, 
was like allowed to paint murals on the walls of the school and like whatever. Um, I don't think I really had an understanding that there was more to do than become an art teacher <laughs> with an right. art career. Um, however, you know, I started exploring it as I was moving towards my senior year. And I talked about possibly going to an art college in New York City. But at the time, I was um, pretty big in the rave scene. I was working at the limelight. My parents were like, we're not paying for you to go raving <laughs> Rude. in New York City. Rude. <laughs> <laughs> I know, jerks. Um, they actually didn't want me to go to college in a city. And my guidance counselor brought them in and said, look, if you're, you're going to be parents that are willing to let your kid have an art career, then you have to give them the best start possible. You can't put them in a liberal arts school in the country. Mm -hmm. So my second choice was University of the Arts in Philadelphia. And they didn't have a fashion program, but they had a really strong illustration program. So I decided to go and try to be a children's illustrator instead. Um, I got very sucked into doing uh, printmaking. And by my sophomore year, I went to the head of the school. At that time, you were only allowed to... Um, to major in one art practice. And I went to the head of the school and said, look, I want to do books. Can I double major in illustration and printmaking and substitute some of like the computer courses for like hands-on printmaking courses? And um, they said yes. And then they went on to create um, a program called Book Arts. And now I understand they have a bunch of like dual um, majors for visual arts, but I was the first student to do that. Mm -hmm. um, then I got, I started doing um, Grateful Dead tour in the summers. And so when I graduated, all I wanted to do was Dead tour. Jerry unfortunately died that year. I did do the festival tour for the Grateful Dead upon graduating and then got on to Fish tour, who I had also started seeing um, and what I ended up doing instead of children's books was doing uh, designs and silk screening them onto T-shirts. Mm -hmm. And I did that for a long time. I was on tour. Um, and then I moved to Canada sometime around 2000 and um, still doing tour, was up there with my boyfriend from tour and was just like bored and started volunteering at a woman's um, kind of thrift shop support for domestic violence, was sitting on the board, was running the thrift shop, and found this tiny little school that was like an Altier school for fashion and decided to go and get a degree from them. Um, so then I got a certificate degree from mm -hmm. them uh, in fashion design, and I learned hands-on you know, everything, sewing and pattern making and all the things, yeah. right? So um, Fish broke up in 2004 and me and my boyfriend broke up in 2004. Was that related or just? Um, I mean, it could have been kind of, sort of, but um, I just had had it. So I packed up my bags and moved to New York City Um and fished at their last tour that summer. And I decided about a year later, uh, I was just kind of waitressing and 
kind of screwing around in New York City, I was like, I should really try to get some internships and try to get into fashion. And that's what I did. But I got hired by this woman, Renee. Renee! <laughs> but I got hired by this woman, Renee, to come in and help her with her accessories line. At the mm-hmm. time, I had no idea how hard it would be to try to transition um, from one category of design to another. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do like streetwear and denim, um, but this was the job that I got. And it really started out pretty low pay in like two or three days a week. And very quickly, Renee realized that um, I'm pretty good at designing stuff. And so that started my journey with Renee, which is how I met you. We started designing more and more for bigger companies, lots of private label. Um, I think we were coming in with not just samples from China, but with actual things that no one else had because I was designing them and sending it overseas and getting samples. And um, I helped Renee grow her business a ton. You know, we were designing for everyone, for all the Urban Outfitters, for TJ Maxx, for Saks and Barneys and everyone plus two boutique lines. Yeah, you could definitely see the difference when you joined the team because suddenly, like, Renee had a lot more cool stuff, for sure. Um, so, yeah, so spoiler, everybody, I, w- when I was working as a buyer at Urban Outfitters, like, early in my career, I actually worked with Aaron and Renee when I was buying scarves and hats and gloves. Um, and Renee was, like, a pretty big vendor for us. I feel like I would go to New York and see like 12 vendors and then just buy from three people. And it was, Renee was always one of them. I have no idea like where they buy their accessories now. But back then, like we did not have a design team for accessories at all. So it was like you would go out and do the rounds uh, and see what people had and, you know, sit down and say like, hey, can we change this? Can we do this? Or like, you know, send an actual like print. Can you work with this? Or send Pantones or inspiration. Um, And we kind of just had to make it up as we went along. And if you worked with a vendor that had a good designer, you would get good stuff back. And there were definitely vendors who I worked with who I'm pretty sure didn't have any designers. We're just, you know, like you were saying, buying samples from China um, and doing development with them was usually not very successful. (laughs) So (laughs) we always gave Renee the hard projects, basically. Yeah. And and she was good. I mean, Renee is nothing if not a salesperson, <laughs> as well as, I mean, she can sell the Brooklyn Bridge to Brooklyn. That it's woman. true. It's true. So how long did you work for Renee? And like, like, how does that connect with like opening a hotel? Like you've done so much stuff. Um, <laughs> my husband kind of says that I'm like a cat with a tinfoil ball. I'll be like doing something and the ball will roll by and I'm like, oh, shiny, shiny. Like, <laughs> I understand this <laughs> feeling very well. <laughs> and I like time out too. Like I like get so excited about something and then I like time out. So I think Renee probably hired me around maybe like the end of 2005 or something. And... Like I said, I started out low days and then we started building up and then I was going in like five days a week and then fish got back together in 2009. (laughs) Oh no. And I started like, and it might've started before that. I started like 
dropping days and asking for more money, but I was making her so much money mm-hmm. that she was just going for it. She didn't care. And then probably in like, I don't know, I want to say 2010, I uh, was coming to the end with like, I didn't want to be doing this anymore. I was really starting to have issues with... Um, the toxicity of the fashion world, quite honestly, yeah. like, you know, the, the big vendor, the, not the big vendors, the big clients were doing stuff like return to vendor on us mm-hmm. or like asking us for discounts and nickel and diming us. And we were turning around and nickel and diming people on the other side of the world. And I'm like, who's sleeping under their sewing machine? Mm-hmm. And I was just like, starting to get more and more like the white papers book had come out and I was starting to get more into sustainable fashion and slow fashion. And I was trying to get Renee to get on board with that kind of stuff, but it's really hard Mm -hmm. to like turn a ship that's already set sail. Definitely. As well as the fact that like our clients weren't supporting us going up in price to be more sustainable. Right. Mm -hmm. So Finally, around like 2010 or 11, I was just like, you know what? I kind of want to have a kid. Mm -hmm. Um, And I kind of, Renee wanted me to buy her business. And I was just like, I don't know if I want this business. I don't know if I want to be in this business with these people, you know? Right, right. I love designing, but like the rest of it is like crap. Um, so I quit Renee's and I restarted my t-shirt line. I was doing only like, um, t-shirt companies that were like ISO certified and all like, you know, the organic or recycled polyester and, you know, water-based inks. And I was doing it myself. Um, as well as I got hired at Pratt to teach in their fashion department. And then I got hit up to write a textbook about the kind of like the parallel of textile and fashion design. Mm-hmm. And there was no textbooks like that out there at the time. And I tried to convince them to let me do it like sustainability within textile and fashion They didn't let me do the whole textbook, but they did allow me to do like a breakout half page blurb within each chapter Uh about the like sustainability of whatever the chapter was. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I was proud of that. Yeah. 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 It's called Sourcing and Selecting Textiles for Fashion. Noted. I don't even know. My husband was like, I got to get out of the city. And I was like, fuck that. And he was (laughs) like, no, really? And I was like, okay. And we like came to Woodstock for our wedding anniversary. And we saw this like property and it was for sale. And we were like, then we went back six months later and Owsley, um, the guy who built the wall of sound for the Grateful Dead Uh had died. And we were in Woodstock for that weekend and his ex um, wife, who's now a good friend of mine, Romy Stanley, 
um, decided to throw a memorial party here in town. It was like the Fonz was there. There was Whoa. like all these old rock stars. It was like the whole town turned out. The galleries donated work. There was bands. People were high. We were like, oh my God, <laughs> this town is awesome. You know? Um, so we started looking at properties and then we ended up buying the property we had looked at like way before i won't tell the whole story but then we had like two houses a new baby my husband had his own business i'm working at pratt we're not like two house income kind of people now we're about to declare bankruptcy and it was like we could sell one or the other uh -huh. and um somebody came to us we were out in bushwick and said hey, do you know anybody looking to sell a building out here? We think it's about to pop off. And we were like, us. <laughs> and so we sold the building we had bought in Bushwick because my dog couldn't climb the four-story four like walk-up I had in Williamsburg anymore like years before. So we moved out to the boonies at what was considered the boonies at that time so we could have a ground-floor apartment. And... Um, yeah, so we sold that building. We're up in Woodstock. Now it turns out my husband's having to commute every day because his business is like taking a turn for the worse. Ugh. I'm like commuting down one day a week from 6 a.m. to like almost 11 o'clock at night to teach all my classes at Pratt in one day. Oh my gosh. My mom's driving from New Jersey for that day to Woodstock to babysit the baby. And I'm just like... And then the rest of the week, like my husband's gone and I'm in the woods with a baby. And I was like, oh, hell no, this is not what's, you know, like, yeah, so I saw this like completely destroyed property go up for sale around the corner from our house. And I was like, maybe I could buy that and turn it into a hotel. So I wrote a business plan and I went around to banks with this baby on my hip and I got funding and then I went to the town and then I taught myself floor planning and I gutted that entire building with a small crew of guys and designed the whole thing, bought every piece of anything that was going in there. A lot of it was thrifted. I like didn't buy all new, most of the art, a lot of the furniture and stuff was actually thrifted um, secondhand. And yeah, ran that for five years until 2019 when I decided that it also wasn't fun to run a hotel. So then I <laughs> yeah, sold I, it. <laughs> it's funny, Dustin and I fantasize about uh, opening a hotel out here where we live in Lancaster County all the time. We've been like fantasizing about it for years. And then we're like, mm -hmm. no, it would, it would suck. Like it would, it would be so stressful and you would learn the worst aspects of humanity. <laughs> yeah. It was definitely to the point by the end where I was like on a pretty solid ban from talking to the guests because <laughs> I, I have no poker face, like right. not at all. My husband's from the Midwest and everybody Everybody just thinks he's so congenial and stuff, but I'm just like, oh, I'm sorry, you want what? <laughs> like, 
no, thank you. Go away. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely not for me. I have a, I've had a few friends who've like worked in hotels like long term. Like one of my friends was a concierge at a really fancy hotel in Portland for a long time. And the stories he would tell me, I would – every time Dustin and I would talk about opening a hotel of our own, I would be like, no, like let me tell you about how often poop gets smeared everywhere and oh the things God. people do in hotels. And- I mean, we never had that happen, thank God. But, <laughs> you know, it's just like a lot. And also the hotel was so wild, but like people would like book through booking.com uh. and show up and be like what the actual – like the building itself started dark purple and faded through these like ombre stripes to like white and it had like hot pink trim and people were just like where is my low slung furniture and gray walls like what the fuck is Uh, happening here yeah you know so there was that there was those people but then we also we were like in multiple magazines multiple music videos you know, lots of artists came. Um, Scott Ian from Anthrax and his wife, Perla Day, came and spent Christmas with us every wow. year. Warren Haynes stayed with us. Gibby Haynes stayed with us. Like, just so much cool, cool stuff happened. But the day-to-day was just like, okay, enough of this. I'm like, <laughs> you yeah, know, like, yeah. I don't have enough time for my art. Like, right. the girls were getting bigger. I had my second daughter. The day we opened the door of the hotel, I literally climbed off a ladder and went to the hospital and wasn't even sure I was going to make it to the hospital. Oh, wow. Um, and so it had been five years. The girls were getting to the age where they could be at school. And I just wanted my art career back. So, Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. That's that's the thing about doing things like that, right? Because it's like a all-consuming full-time times 10 job. And if you're a yeah. creative person or you, there are other things you want to do, you just like don't, you don't get to do them anymore, you know? Right, right. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. 
Gabriela Antonis is a visual artist, an upcycler, and a fashion designer. But Gabriela Antonis is also a feminist micro-business with radical ideals. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the world needs. If you find yourself in New Orleans, Louisiana, you may buy her ready-to-wear upcycle garments in person at the store Slow Down at 2855 Magazine Street. Slowdown Nola only sells vintage and slow fashion from local designers, and Gabriella's garments are guaranteed to be in stock in person, but they also have a website, so you may support this woman-owned and run business from wherever you are. If you're interested in Gabriella making a one-of-a-kind garment for you, DM her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella. That's Gabriella with one L. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at HighEnergyVintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. 
Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single-stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. So, okay, today we're talking about print design specifically and AI. And I'm going to start by saying that, like, I originally when I started thinking about this episode, which was something I'd wanted to do for a while, I was like, oh, I should get someone who works in the world of AI to come and talk about it too. And I was like, oh, it'd be cool, like, to have, like, a print designer and then an AI person and we could dialogue. And I'm going to tell you that every... every AI person that I reached out to and started talking to was like drinking the Kool-Aid so hard that I felt I was not going to have patience with them. Um, So what was the Kool-Aid? Just that like, this is like the best thing that's ever happened to the world and it's going to change everything. And like, no, it's not unethical. And people who stand, who think it's unethical kind of are standing in the way of progress. And I didn't push people too hard because I was like, I don't know this person. They don't owe me anything. So were these actual creatives or are these texts? No, that was the thing. These were tech people, right? I couldn't find someone, interestingly enough, who was like, I I am an artist (laughs) and I also work in AI. Like that, I mean, that's the interesting part of it, right? And I ultimately was like, you know, I, I like to hear right. other perspectives, but everything that they were saying, I could already see all over the internet all day, every day if I wanted. Right. I mean, interesting or problematic, right? Yeah. So yeah. what is interesting, though, is I read the, how do you pronounce it? Selkie? Selkie. Uh, yeah, I've, I read the Selkie articles, uh, you know, not being so much on social media. I had no no clue who these people were or about the drama until you sent me the article links. And what really caught my eye is that um, the girl, you know, said I design for a week, which was like, what? <laughs> oh, my God. OK, I so before OK, before we jump to it, I'm going to start by saying that. If what we're talking about is is something that happened probably about a month ago now, uh, the brand Selkie, which is often like revered as this like ethical, slow fashion-y kind of brand. And I will say there are cracks in that story and that narrative, which I probably by the time any listener is listening to this episode, I've already talked about it before this conversation started. But so... They released this Valentine's Day print collection, and it was all these, like, cute animals, very, like, vintage Valentine's Day, vintage, like, 80s animal art inspired. Like, I I was like, this is so cute. You know, there was, like, a lot of fluffy white cats as a fluffy white cat, you know, owner. I was like, oh, this is this is cute. Like, this is appealing on a visual level to me. Um, and someone asked in the Instagram comments, like, who designed these prints? And, like, I don't know... Uh, if they, the social media manager for Selkie was instructed to say this or not, but they were like, oh, well, Kim, Kimberly Gordon, our, you know, founder and our designer, she used AI and watercolor and some other stuff, right? And people have obviously are like, wait, it was like record scratch. Like, wait, 
wait, what? Like, these prints are AI. And so this starts blowing up, like, on social media. Uh, There are about a gazillion comments on the Instagram post, but there's actually, like, well, there are multiple Facebook groups for people who love or hate Selkie, interestingly enough. But there's one main group called Selkie Obsessed, and people were, like, irate. And one person went as far as being like, hey, if you zoom into these prints, they're actually all fucked up and weird, just like AI. Like there was a puppy with like seven toes and like weird ghost signatures floating around. And and uh, Selkie kind of like doubled down on it and was like, yeah, we use AI. What? It's the future. You got to lean in. And then slowly, by the time you read the article that I sent you from TechCrunch, suddenly Selkie's like, okay, we won't do this anymore. Right? I mean, kind of, but not. What really caught my eye, which I think to be true and across the board, is that really she is correct in saying that when you are in fashion, you are designing an, like a year before that collection drops, right? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. of... So to be fair, last year in January... Nobody was having these big AI discussions. Very and true. AI was starting, was, and she probably did think, hey, this is really cool. Nobody knew at that point that these AI mid journey companies were mining copyrighted work from living artists to train their models. They were yep. literally taking people's artwork. That was out in the public domain, but clearly belonged to them. And it's a living artist working in the field and then also taking the artist's names so that that could be a verbal trigger, just like I want AI to paint a blue ball. Now they're like, yeah. I want AI to paint a blue ball in the style of so-and-so artist. And if you're one of the 16,000 or more artists that they did this to, now that blue ball is potentially going to look like something you created. <laughs> so yeah, it's this is wild. where the ethics get really, really shitty. And mm-hmm. I do have to say that there's no way that she would have known that. No, not a year ago. I agree. I remember no. Dustin and his friends. My, Dustin, my husband, belongs to like a Slack for... I think he calls it like aging music dudes. And they were at that point, all of them were like dying over playing around with AI to create, like putting in random words to see what would come back and sharing like screenshots of it and like, you know, reworking like legendary album covers and things like that. And no one was making any money off of it. But certainly back then, people were very curious and sort of excited about it. That was before like the information came out. And you, you shared an article with me about well it basically came out that like uh wait all these artists are being scraped and i just want to read this one excerpt from it because and we'll share this in the show notes but it was very um crazy very crazy yeah like for lack of a better adjective mm-hmm. uh in a series of posts on X, the artist John Lamb, who works for the video game developer Riot Games, shared screenshots of a chat in which Midjourney developers, and by, by the way, Midjourney is one of the big AI, would you call it like an app, a platform, a service? I, I, I don't know. Let's call company. it a corporation because okay. they're okay. not my favorite. 
Okay, right, okay. So in which mid-journey designers, this corporation, purportedly discuss preloading artists' names and styles into the program from Wikipedia and other sources, guaranteeing that selected artists' work would be available for mimicry and prevalently featured as a reference material for image creation. And this is true. Mm-hmm. You can literally go on there and say, I would like to see art in the vein of blank. It even shows you options to click on and add into your search. Um, one screenshot features a, an apparent post by Midjourney's chief executive, David Holes, in which he welcomes the addition of 16,000 artists to the program's training. Another contains a message in which a chat member sarcastically addresses the issue of copyright, saying that all you have to do is just use those scraped data sets and then conveniently forget what you use to train the model. Boom, legal problems solved forever. Four members of the group responded to this with an enthusiastically affirmative 100 emoji, which is like, I mean, th- this this article has all the receipts and that's just the beginning of it, right? Yeah. Like, like they are literally, and, it, and it's interesting because Dustin was showing me how this works, that I was specifically like, I wanted to look at like, artists that I knew from the 90s who were like iconic, like underground comic book artists. And it would be like, oh, he would be like, oh, Daniel Chloe's? Oh, that's like an option in here. We just click that and then type in what we want it to create in the style of Daniel Chloe's or Adrian Tomine or all of these Mm -hmm. other artists. Mm -hmm. And Tara McPherson. Yes, that's another Mm -hmm. great one. And And they used her. And it was very clear. Like the Mm -hmm. the resulting art, it would be hard to see that it wasn't drawn by them like it was uncanny and you could use it to create like really fucked up stuff like if you wanted to like create a deep fake of one of these artists doing Mm -hmm. like really unethical or like racist or just hateful stuff you could so like dustin was showing this to me like a year ago and i was like whoa this is like really shocking yeah but i don't know if at that point anyone was thinking about like what are the sort of like economic implications of companies starting to just use AI to create all of their prints and packaging and marketing messages and you know photo shoots like getting rid of photographers and artists and you know that's the thing right like suddenly not only it's like going back to what Dustin said like technology was supposed to give us more time to make art because we'd be working less but what it's really doing is taking away the art in the first place and that's that's what you see happening here and I, you know, I think that's what a lot of the outrage with Selkie was. I don't think I know. I, I, I will say, like, listen, I understand once you run the fabric, there is no turning back, right? right. And if you are a small brand, you cannot say, oh, we're going to we're gonna dispose of all that fabric we just ran in that print. Right. Like, like, I've worked for companies like that as well. I've also worked for big companies, you know, like Urban mm-hmm. Outfitters, who would have been like, oh, we'll just burn it and move on, right? right. Like, th- like, it's not a good thing. And if I were in her position, I probably would have... you know, continued and launched the collection. But it also sounded like she was like, I really don't understand. So I didn't say, hey, give me a kitten drawn like Tara McPherson. What I did, what she clearly did was ask for 
you know, non-copyrighted, like old school Valentine's Day card kind of stuff. And then she collages and she paints on top. And like nobody seems to have really given her blown back for like taking like Van Gogh shit mm-hmm. or whatever. And so really, in many ways, if you don't know that the way that these computers have been trained is by this latent thievery, which they clearly mm-hmm. know is wrong, but they're going to work around it because the internet's the <laughs> fucking wild west. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I keep cursing. No, it's fine. Me too. It's fine. This is one of those things that really, um, it elicits the F-bomb because it's like so frustrating. <laughs> but I could see her being like, what is the difference between me scanning some of my collectible old you know, cards and taking the time to scan it into the computer and just asking AI to make me the specific cat I'm looking for in front of the specific heart with like daisies instead of roses. I get her seeing why that wasn't a problem Mm -hmm. without the knowledge that we have all learned in the year since. Right. Because it's not like she said, make me a Tara McPherson spaceman. And then I'm going to say, well, too bad. It actually wasn't drawn by you, and I can use this even though it looks exactly like your work. I'm sure that uh, she has had a lot more time to reflect on this and hopefully, like, read more about it and is maybe thinking, like, okay, I can see where people are upset about this. I think the other thing, which kind of – I felt like there was a certain part of that. I've read that TechCrunch piece, like, five times now. There's a certain part of of the piece that I start to feel like I'm dizzy reading – her like logic and I also understand what her logic is and basically the argument that a lot of people were pushing back on is like listen you charge three four five six seven hundred dollars for a dress Mm -hmm. and you couldn't pay someone to create the print and on top of that like when we use AI to create prints and art what we're really doing is taking jobs away from artists Right. right These are things that make sense to me. Her, this is the part of the article where I start to get dizzy, which is where she says, yeah, but I'm the artist for Selkie. And so if I'm going to use AI, I'm not replacing anyone. Yeah. I'm not not giving an artist a job. Like I'm just doing it because I'm the artist anyway. And that part of it, I was like, okay, like I see what she's saying. Um, I do think that like if they had never... I suspect the social media manager is in trouble uh, for responding to the comment that way. Um, And like, I think that no one would have ever guessed. I will say like, when you look at the prints now, you're like, there's like really clear, like AI bullshit stuff that wasn't cleaned up here. And that like, to me is a sign of her rushing through things. And like, that's where it comes to you. So the, the quote you said, like, I don't know, 15 minutes ago, where you, she said, each collection takes me a week to design. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, I think we know what the problem is here because every collection is like 20 pieces and somehow you're doing the whole thing in a week and you're doing like a drop of a new collection like every two weeks. What I see is the real problem here is it's like fast fashion, dude. Yeah. Like you are constantly churning out new stuff which does not align with what you portray yourself as is this more like premium slow fashion ethical brand that's like not what you do and I want to be clear with everybody to create a whole collection even to create a whole collection of prints in a week is insanity but it has been from what I could see it has been her thing 
the whole time to take Mm -hmm. existing art, existing photo, collage it in Photoshop. I mean, I actually support her when she says, I'm not taking the job away from anyone because I am the artist. And that that's very true. Why should she, if she has success creating prints for her own line, why should she go out and hire some other artist? That's not what her company is about. That's fine. Maybe as she grows, she will, you know, but you know, as I could say, like the hippie shake doesn't have any other textile designers than me. Why? Because at this point, my hand is becoming like, synonymous with their brand uh, in the way that Missoni mm-hmm. does or something. And I would say that that probably goes for Selkie and her doing the prints, right? Uh, the whole I design, yeah. I, that blew my mind. And it's probably a conversation for another podcast. <laughs> but I'm like, what? Well, you know what that said to me? I was like, oh, this is fast fashion. Right. Like who's like, doing the pattern making? No, How are we getting new silhouettes? Well, so I did see it's a lot of repeat silhouettes and kind of cut and paste. Like let's put the ruffle sleeves on this body now or whatever. But... Well, here's what I will say as a person who's been following this brand for a long time. They are notorious for bad fit, for low quality. Like their zippers are garbage. Most people who buy from them can't even unzip the dress to put it on. They just have to jam it over their heads and move their boobs around to get it to fit. Um, the, like, th- that's the thing is like... Viral shit the is values, It is vile. And the values do not align. And I mean like the personal values of like ethics and slow fashion that she purports to advocate. Uh, They do not align with the actual product itself. And so one thing that has always puzzled me is that they do seem to run a lot of the same silhouettes over and over again, which many slow fashion brands Mm -hmm. do. Many good brands do that. But what they do do is make them better over time instead of being like, oh, no, this is fine. We'll just keep it where it is. And so that part was always perplexing to me. But I also have noticed that in the past year, suddenly it went from a drop every two months to a drop every month and then a drop every two weeks and sometimes now a drop every week. must have so much money. I don't... Like, how do I become sulky? I, I, yeah, I, <laughs> I have I mean, to be good at Instagram, right? <laughs> exactly. I often wonder, I'm like, what's the financial situation under the covers? Obviously, the stuff like fascinates me. Like, what is their real, like, what's really yeah. happening? Um, yeah. But I also noticed that, like, in these f- Facebook groups, every time she drops a, a, a collection, people go buy three, four, five items from it. We're talking thousands of dollars. And so, yeah, the stuff is selling. The money is coming in. Like, I, I don't know. It's, it's when I saw the, uh, all the obvious like AI er- errors in the print, which I do not think were intentional, even though she sort of implies in that article that they were. I'm oh, like, no, they weren't. that's what I was going to say. I was like, she those are like, not intentional, please. That was the quote that like got me where she was like, are you kidding me? Nine toes on a puppy? Like, that's going to be collectible as fuck, like moving no, it's forward. Not. Like, that's no. going to be the thing that everybody wants, like down the road, the first AI collection. And she could be right, the like whole you know, the collection that made the big like splash or whatever, because there was like a viral like blowback against it. <laughs> it could People be are weird, man. People are weird. Here's what she said. Exactly. 
I think the art is funny and I think it's cheeky and there's little details like an extra toe. Five years from now, this sweater is going to be such a cool thing because it will represent the beginning of a whole new world. An extra toe is like a representation of where we are beginning. And I was like, what? (laughs) I don't know about that. But like I I see I, I see these the extra toe and what I see is someone rushing through because they have to create yet another drop of 20 items and they are the only person working on this team who does that mm-hmm. stuff and that mm-hmm. perhaps it is an indicator to slow down and or hire someone else to help you. So like right. to me the, I can see her side of why she uses AI and how she uses it. My bigger concern with the whole thing was I was like, oh my God, like you are going so fast right? that I don't think you, people are going to look back and be like, I love how this has an extra toe. No, no one is going to think that. Like, <laughs> like, cause we're used to be things being crappy and imperfect now. <laughs> like honestly, right. right? So yeah, I thought... I, The whole thing, I was like, I'm glad we're having this conversation, right? Because then I stumbled upon another another brand. Um, Now, I'm going to preface this by saying, like, I am very unfamiliar with this brand other than, like, investigating them on the internet. And they are a cosmetic brand called Ensley Rain Cosmetics. And basically, they sell a lot of eyeshadow palettes and other items in, like, limited edition packaging. And it's really, like, the prints that sell it. And then like the, you know, they reflect the vibe of the palette. And these these eyeshadow palettes are like $45. Like they're not cheap. Wow. And I went down a weird yeah. rabbit hole Where of like. people get their money from? Do, well, I mean, this is like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to say. Remember when it was like millennials can't buy houses because they eat avocado toast? Like this, that was right. nothing. That was like amateur hour to where we are now with, with consumerism. Um, but oh I was looking, you know, I. I of course, like I am a creep on the internet. So once I have something to look into, I can't stop looking. So I'm like reading Reddit conversations about the quality of these cosmetics and on and on and on. Like people are like, it's not worth $45. It's actually an off the shelf palette with just their art thrown on over it. So I was like, huh, interesting. I kept seeing this coming up over and over again. Once again, this is with me having no familiarity with using their products. Um, But I was like, oh, yeah, those are like off the shelf palettes, like in terms of like, you know, the packaging itself, because like it looks like stuff I could go buy at TJ Maxx right now. And it's really the art and the curation of it all that sells it. And at least with Selkie, you can say like, oh, this is very unique aesthetic this very unique design proposition, white, fine. But with the eyeshadow, I was like, well, we all know that like makeup, it really is sold by its packaging and it's like marketing, right? Because it's all the same ingredients mixed up over and over again. And so what was interesting is that this brand uses AI for its prints and they did a long post on Instagram I don't know, like earlier this week, last week, basically like, let's talk about AI and why we use it. No, wait, 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 wait. No, I'm like, okay, there's an institute and I'm not going to be able to think of the artist, but there's a cover with a cat because now I'm on Instagram because I was like, oh, what is she talking about? And like, I recognize that cat and I'll probably go to sleep tonight and sit up and know exactly what artist it is. Oh my God. I, I, t- I agree. I recognize this art. And then there's one that's like update and it's got like the white haired fairy, but then the girl with the mushrooms underneath the face of that girl 
is also extremely familiar. So for the audience, not only do I work in fashion, but I work dabble in like rock poster art and have since the mid nineties. And I'm friends with a lot of poster artists and in like private groups with them. And so I'm pretty familiar with that kind of, um, I show at galleries with them. I'm pretty familiar with a lot of work within that realm as well and illustration. So yeah, no, I mean, now that we're talking about it, as I scroll through this more, I'm like, all of this looks like something I've seen before, you right. know? And yeah. uh, it's not a surprise to me that it's AI, actually, because it all looks like a copy of something that already exists. Like, it right. seems like they really lean into a lot of these, like, really iconic, like, 90s artists. Like, mm-hmm. I can, you know, I recognize the inspiration for all of these you're selling these palettes for $45 and we know that makeup is really sold by packaging and you can't even afford an artist to, to do it because like, I'll tell you, like, that's what my husband does is design packaging and stuff for people. And like, mm-hmm. he's not, you wouldn't have to sell that many $45 palettes to, to pay him, honestly. And I know that uh, cosmetics are actually like really high profit margin, especially when you're selling direct to consumer like they are and you're not like selling wholesale. Um, so that part was a little like, hmm, to me. And they start talking about this emerging AI platform called Water Lily. Have you heard of this? Mm-mm. I think it's still in the early stages. But they're going on about how Water Lily is working on a system that will pay the referenced artists in micropayments. Oh, and, uh, cute. Like I know, Spotify oh, pays yeah, exactly. like a dollar exactly. or a penny a listen or like a... A uh, half of a penny, a hay penny. <laughs> exactly. No, I mean, I've literally, like, I have people in my life who've been like, oh, I got a check for seven cents from Spotify. Seems like it's working really well. Yeah, it's all hay pennies. Oh, um, and so I was just sort of like reading this and I was like, well, I didn't even know about this cosmetics brand before, but I certainly wouldn't ever buy from them now. Like, this is really bothersome to me because packaging is such an important part of what they do and they lean into it. They should be spending the money to do it. And if they think they can't afford it, then they need to have someone who's a professional help them figure out their finances, right? Yeah. And here's the part that killed me about this whole thing, Erin, because I went into the comment section, of course, because I love punishing myself. And people, most people, I will say, were like, guys, this is like so unethical and like, yeah, we see how micropayments are working for Spotify. Good plan, guys. Or like, you right, know, they were right. like, just, you, you know, like one person was like, honestly, your packaging isn't that great because it always looks like a knockoff of someone else. So you should like hire someone. Like people were saying the things that you and I would have said. But then there were people showing up to be like, well, I'm not going to pay like $5 more for a palette just so you can pay an artist. And there were a lot of people who were like, I don't care about this. Like, I don't want to pay higher prices. Just keep using AI. Who cares? And that's the part, I mean, like, I, that's the part that bothers me is that, like, unfortunately, as long as people have that attitude, which, by the way, I'm going to tell you, it's not going to cost them $5. They're not going to have to raise their prices $5. Yeah, no. no. To pay an artist? No, no, no. That's, like, not how it works. And honestly, as long as people are sitting around not having that, like, class solidarity when they're saying, I would yeah. rather pay $5 less for an eyeshadow palette mm-hmm. than right. sus- like sustain art in this world. Or I don't know, you know, like 
how much are the owners making? Yeah, exactly. I have like a million questions. Like maybe they could take like 1% out of what they're making and pay an artist 2%, 3%. You know what I mean? Like it's just, yeah. I, I mean, creative always gets the shit. It's, 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 no, it's true. Always. Yeah. It's always like, we need you. Until we don't, and then we don't want to pay you, and my brother-in-law could have done it better. Like, I follow this guy made by James. He's so cute on Instagram. Now there's a bunch of knockoffs of him as well. Um, But he's really been very forthcoming about, like, payment and stuff because creatives always play close to the chest about what they're being paid. I think oftentimes because they're being paid crap and they're embarrassed, but like they don't know what else to do with their lives because this is why they were put on this planet, Mm -hmm. right? To be there. And, or maybe they're afraid someone's going to take the information and try to undercut them. I don't know what it is. The amount of money that people don't want to pay creatives is obscene. And then James was like, you know, when I upped my prices, let me show you the difference between that $250 logo and the $10,000 logo. It's the client. The $250 client is like, oh, could you change this? Could you change that? Could you change this? Oh, my brother-in-law had a great idea. Oh, this, that, and the next thing. Whereas the $10,000 client is like, we need you to create this. Oh, we like this one. Move forward. Okay, here you go. And here's your money. Thank you. Goodbye. You know, and it's like true. (laughs) This is what my husband does for a living. And we've had to have a lot of conversations, kind of continuous conversations about building in boundaries with clients because this Mm -hmm. is exactly what happens. And then suddenly he does the math and he made $5 an hour for whatever that project was. That is not an exaggeration. Oh my God. But this is, this is how it goes. And, you know, as I was thinking about this, obviously this like AI and like the sort of like disregard for creatives by just about any industry is something that he and I talk about constantly. And we were driving this weekend and we were talking about how, T-shirts are, I mean, you know this, fucking massive moneymaker, right? For And so every every brand, every retailer mm-hmm. is selling T-shirts. God, go to Spencer's. You think it's just for dildos, but mm-hmm. they have a thousand T-shirts in there, right? right? You know, and it's like everybody's in the T-shirt game. And I was telling him, you know, I have at many of my jobs had to manage T-shirts as a category. And I would go to market or get sent stuff by vendors. And I would be like, oh my Mm -hmm. God, this is a copy of that artist. This is a copy of this artist. This is literally a copy of someone who is actually my friend, you know? And like, I would see it all or go Mm -hmm. to the show Mm -hmm. and a whole wall of T-shirts where I'm like, oh, that's this person. This person is that on Instagram. That's their username, this, this, this. And I said like, it's just so derivative and disrespectful when they could just like none of the people I know who like sell their art and t-shirts on Instagram are exactly making a killing it would be very open to getting written a check to design something for them but rather than do that they just copy and at my last job we had constant issues with vendors selling us stuff that it turned out were copies it's like really hard to check that stuff because they changed just enough to not catch up like, you know, Google image search or something. So you can't validate it. And every time I call them out on it, they would be like, Oh, that, you know, sorry, that was like a freelancer. We're going to look into how that happened. And it was like, no, no, it wasn't, you know? And I, at my last job also, they were kind of like, 
we don't want to pay people to design t-shirts anymore. So at that point, Dustin was helping me by creating a lot of t-shirts. Like we would come up with a concept together and then he would draw them and, you know, that would be the style and would get printed. And, you know, uh, he, because he's my husband and was just trying to help me out because my job was very stressful, would be like, I'll do it for $150 a design. $150 a design, my friends, where if we sold out of the f- the first order, we the company probably would have made, I don't know, $24,000, okay? So, mm-hmm. so here we are. Mm-hmm. And profit, by mm-hmm. the way, profit, everyone. And so uh, the owner of our parent company who is a belligerent boomer asshole was like, I don't think we should be paying $150 a design. That is too much money. I think you should go on to these like apps like Fiverr or these other design apps where you pay people 50 bucks to do it. And I said, okay, we'll try some of these out. So we tried out one and I can't remember what it was called. But basically, you put the design proposition up there, and then people submit a preliminary design, and you pick a winner, right? And then they send you the art. And Mm -hmm. I only did this because I knew it was going to suck, because I was like, hmm, so this platform charges $100, which, by the way, is only $50 less than you're paying Dustin. Right. And uh, they... They charge us $100. So how much are they paying the artist? Maybe 50 bucks. If I were an mm-hmm. artist and mm-hmm. I were going to make $50 off of a design, probably there's even more in fees that gets taken. So you get 40. Uh, I would be using AI all day to create art because who cares? You know? And so yeah. we, I sat down with yeah. my team and we came up with this like idea for a t-shirt that was like a giraffe wearing a scarf on a skateboard. And it's like a really long scarf with all these different colors. And there's leaves blowing. You know, and I was like, okay, it can only be five colors for printing, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to tell you, Erin, we got 20 submissions and they were all exactly the same art from 20 different artists <laughs> who clearly had just copy pasted our prompt into AI. They all looked exactly the same. And I was mm-hmm. like, this is, I'm, I'm sympathetic for these artists because how else do you make a living? Right? Right? And, and right. so, and these- 100%. And then also the problem that we're not talking about is that every time people use these AI platforms, they're also training. I've got like a very Mm -hmm. good friend who is constantly like posting AI things he's created. And I'm like literally holding myself back from like, dude, you have to stop. You are training for free this program by giving them ideas of what goes together and practice makes perfect. And it's like the more we all use it and it, yeah, it's super it's gross. gross. Actually, it's like funny that you wouldn't say that because like Dustin and his friends stopped using it when they realized that they were like, just even if they were like, Oh, we're looking mm-hmm. for a dolphin leaping over the world trade center on nine 11 in the style of, Van Gogh or whatever. They were like, we're just training it, you right. know? So like they all stopped, you know? But like these platforms wouldn't exist where artists are being forced to like use AI to create art to make a living if brands and companies and just corporate America as a whole would value the importance of 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 artists and creativity and nurturing that and supporting that mm-hmm. and rather being like mm, $150 right. is like a lot for a t-shirt design, you know, like, right. and I have to say that still, in my opinion, I can tell when something is AI done, maybe there will come a point 
where we won't, but you know, I'm like a seventies baby, like early seventies. And so I was in college. Um, I didn't even take computer courses in art college. Um, like I said, I traded out my quark express taking me back uh, classes (laughs) for like, uh, handset type and stuff. Um, and I had to teach myself computers. And so I was there as, um, illustration and my illustration is very like old school. I was always obsessed with like the old school golden age of like illustration, Alfonso Mucha, which everybody's obsessed with now. And, you know, Maxville Parish and Rackham Mm -hmm. and like, you know, Maurice Sendick, all of that. Right. And so my artwork really reflects that and it still does. However, Um, I started being told as I started to leave college that like, I probably would not make it as an illustrator because that's not where the trend was going. The trend was going towards this like Adobe illustrator, computer illustrated still by hand. I mean, there was no AI people were working the tools, you know, procreate, um, has become a huge tool within the poster industry. And I feel like I can see the difference between the people that use Procreate and the people that are still doing hand done, even though Procreate is a very hands on mm-hmm. program. Um, and it's kind of like AI. I don't know that we are ever, that AI is ever going to advance beyond human ingenuity unless the computers become smarter than us and then we're all really fucked anyway then it's like a whole other movie yeah i mean right now (laughs) we're like terminator 2 and are they really obsessed with doing art or are they going to take over the world you know we'll have to wait and see cliffhanger um but (laughs) can't wait (laughs) Uh, but you know it's like i don't know that this is ever like is AI going to produce a Rembrandt that's not based on Rembrandt? Is AI going yeah. to produce a Mike Giant or a Tyra McPherson that's not based on Mike Giant or Tyra McPherson? Is AI going to make a jump into its own unique style and create an art monster? You know what I mean? I don't know if that's ever going to happen. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, that is something I think about. I think that... You know, much like, for example, you know, a lot of people assume that like clothes are made by robots or machines or something, but really they're made by humans because technology has not found a way to mimic that touch of hand, the human no. component. Yeah, like take the pieces and send it through, sew the armhole to the sleeve. Like, yeah, that's not like a like conveyor it, belt. Right. It needs like the, human it needs the human. It needs the humans, right? And I think it's like the same way with art, honestly. Like... I've seen the kind of stuff like AI writes and it's, it's not good. Right. And it's not like it. I think that, you know, especially in the world of like commercial art, when we're thinking about clothing design and, you know, prints for fabrics and, Mm -hmm. you know, marketing content and stuff, we forget because all these companies, especially are really focused on like, what's, What's the return on investment in this art, right? Like, that's the thing. They're forgetting that, like, the reason art exists, the reason people create is because it is part of, like, human expression. Right. That really to make is a human 
an intrinsically human experience. And it is all a part of like what's going on in our heads and hearts, right? It's not, people don't create, I mean, now everybody's forced to create to like make a living, but in general, like creation is not about the return on investment, right? It's about exploring yourself. And so I really feel very skeptical that it could ever get there. And I think that's the reason, like I was telling you when we started talking, like when you see brands trying to do like a 60s, 70s thing on their own, it always comes back kind of cheesy. Like it's just like, because they're not like, they're not having someone create it with like that passion. Right. And like, you know, and, and I, I just, I see this time and time again. And so like going back to this company that is like, I, we're only going to use AI for our packaging. I'm like, then why are you doing this? <laughs> like, right. you know, like, where's your pride in like this, some, creating something special? Like, right. and you know, so I think, I think it's problematic for me. I see, like I said, I see the t-shirts being copied all the time, the prints being copied. I mean, I will tell you, like, it is not uncommon, even in the world of fashion in general, to be sent to buy something vintage and copy that, right? Like, it's like, it's, everything is such a copy of a copy of a copy, Mm -hmm. but the original, the original was actually a work of art, you know? Right. Uh, Supposedly, who knows, right? Like, there's, there's arguments to be made for, for some of that. Things build on each other. Absolutely. You use inspiration, um, but that can lead us to uh, touch on copyright and yes. why fashion is pretty much, and by fashion, I mean the silhouettes is mm-hmm. pretty much non-copyrightable or even trademarkable. Um, and that is because it is a really hard argument to win. Mm-hmm. When you say something like... Um, Oh, you you made up the mini dress and the Peter Pan collar? No, you didn't. Those are pieces. It's like those little, like, remember? Oh, my God, I love them so much. The fashion plates where uh, it's like the little pink trays and you switch out their shirt and their skirt mm-hmm. and their boots and then you color it over with the crayon. I just, thrift, I just thrifted a set, actually, a few weeks ago. I almost, like cried when I found them at the thrift store. So the fun. set is fully intact, except it doesn't have the colored pencils, which you know were terrible anyway. They were right, like the worst right. colored pencils. <laughs> but, uh, and it's definitely the set from the 70s. It's nice. like the original set. It's so good. Um, but yeah, that's what clothing has kind of become, right? Here's your, sil- here's what you have. Mix them mm-hmm. up. <laughs> I mean, even for top designers, it's very hard to say that that's original. Now, when mm-hmm. you get into... Um, two-dimensional art that becomes very copyrightable right Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. examples with like the hippie shake is like we have had like um, cider and um, (laughs) ox knits knock knock our stuff off and um, Naomi's always like ugh look at this one, you know, but I've gone after some of those companies, um, just to say this needs to come down immediately. Like I am the graphic designer here and this shit's copyrighted and already in use. And I have proof of use prior to you and this better come down. You do not Mm -hmm. have my permission to sell it, you know, and if you've made a profit, we want to see some of it. 
nobody ever pays me the profit, but you know, <laughs> I do get people to take the stuff down. Um, and then I recently had a run in with a young designer, um, that kind of came to my attention. Naomi was already aware of her. Naomi was a little bit like, she's just a single girl and she's da 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 and she's trying to make a living. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. Uh, but I'm also a solo entrepreneur and I'm also just trying to make a living and I've got right. additionally two children to feed. And so that's great. And it's so flattering. Um, you know, and of course the girl came back after my initial contact and was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, uh, and then blocked me on everything. Oh, mm -hmm. right. Yeah. So then I was like, okay, so nothing says I'm innocent, like blocking someone from viewing what you're doing in the future. <laughs> I mean, come on. But, yeah. you know, I went back and was able to, you know, go to her website. There's no way to block me from your website. And, like, screenshot, cut and paste, dates, times, all the things. And I had actually already done a bunch of that prior to contacting her because I had a feeling that's what was going to happen. Um, mm -hmm. And I literally made almost a 10-page document. Oh, wow. Of, like, yeah, of, like, and then was just kind of like, you know, this could all just be coincidence. I mean, ideas are out there in the right, ether. Right. Ten pages in, I'm feeling like it's not, but maybe it is. So if it is, I'm going to assume this will not continue to happen in the future. Because if it does, I will be contacting like your government and your trade association. Because I'm not fucking around. Like, come on, man. Like, yeah, it's not okay. You know what I mean? It's no more okay to steal somebody's art, especially someone who is a working artist. You know what? You want to go do a nod to Alfonso, Alfonso Muca or this, that, and the next thing. And those people could not possibly have their income impacted, you know, but to like go out and steal another working artist work over and over and over again. It's like, no, man, it's not. Go steal their car. It's like the same thing. It's so hard to be a working artist. If you go um, to some of the like research centers that, you know, compile data, I think that there was a data like for women artists who consider themselves working artists that the average income was $10,000 a year. As a working artist. No, I believe it. I believe it. I, I, come I, on, man. <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, I honestly, like, going back to the people on, like, the cosmetic palette saying, like, I don't want to pay $5 extra so, like, you can have an artist. Like, where's the class solidarity there? Like, why are we saying that it is more important for me to have low, low prices than for people to be able to make a living? Like, I just... Yeah. This, and this is the thing is that, you know, I've just finished this series of episodes about like why clothes are kind of garbage now. And there are many reasons, but I will tell you the number one reason is that people keep buying them right. and brands are like, cool. So if people keep selling stuff that is like stolen from artists or uses AI to develop the prints and people buy it, well, guess what? That's what we're going to keep getting. In fact, we're going to get more and more of it. Yeah, 100%. That's yep. what frustrates me so much is that like, 
we are such an intrinsic part of this as like the the consumers. I hate calling us that, but like ultimately every time we buy something like that, we're showing support for that. You know what? And it's so hard sometimes though, you know, so I admittedly, I am very much so a secondhand buyer almost exclusively, Mm -hmm. but like, I've really been having an issue with like, I just feel like I don't have any pants to wear. Right. (laughs) And so I was like, okay, Christmas ended. Everything's on sale. Everything's on sale. Everything's on sale. Let me just treat myself. If I just get five pairs of pants that fit these categories, I could just like move forward with my life because other things, whatever. Right. So, Mm -hmm. and I love clothes. I mean, I'm going to admit it. I absolutely love clothes. So from two companies, I bought five pairs of pants. Guess how many pairs fit me? Zero. One, (laughs) one, one. And then two, of them from that same company were non-returnable. Great. So now you I'm know just why sitting that with is? these pants yeah. and I'm like, okay. Uh, and I'm like trying to unload them onto my friends who like have a different body shape or whatever. <laughs> just like, this is a lesson, lesson learned, like no more like, and it's always with pants, like shirts always like work better for buying sight on scene Kind of because there's a lot, a lot more flexibility. Almost no one wear, no one wears like a fitted shirt that doesn't have like a knit, right? Yeah. Anymore, but like denim or something, it's just completely unforgiving unless you go super cheap denim, and then it's like stretchy and whatever problems yeah. all over the board. Um, uh, it's true. So many. Pro- I mean, this is. But the thing is, is that like when I remember, I mean, like, I'm going to be honest, like I was working at Urban when we started the descent into gross fast fashion. Um, It was just the beginning. I worked in many other places since then that were fully in it. We were always like, are people really going to buy this? Well, they probably won't. And then we'll know, and then we won't do this anymore. But people just kept being like, ah, I guess I'm just cool with pants not fitting, you know, (laughs) or clothes made of plastic or just ugly things that weren't nice. And, you know, like if people stopped buying it, these brands would be forced to make a change because like the thing they fear most is making less money next year, you know? Yeah. Yeah. For a hot minute, I was like on a design team with this woman, Lindsay Jones. She's like the head designer owner for Muse, um, which was one of the first fashion um, runway collections that used trans models, which, you know, she's very cool. I love Lindsay. Um, but one of her first or second collections with Muse got like knocked off items, uh, by H and M. And then that was like, that was like my death now for H and M, right? It should have come sooner, Mm -hmm. but it was like hard. And it's like, you know, it's like hindsight is 2020. Like a lot of this just happened in like, you know, like you didn't even realize it was happening at first, then yeah. all of a sudden it comes to the place where like, there's nothing even like good at like secondhand stores because everything's mm-hmm. stretched out and mm-hmm. crap. And like, and yet also you're just like in a, um, in a financial position where like you want to buy something and like, you don't have $300 for a pair of jeans, you yeah. know what I mean? And it's just like, it's just self-perpetuating. I don't know. There's, it's a, it's a big conundrum. I think there's a lot of ways to look at what's happening. 
I think when we think about like what we do or do not buy or what we support or who we don't support, you know, the the line that makes us finally like break up with a brand or change what we're doing, it's determined by us. And for some people, you know, it's the low quality that's going to be the breaking point for them. For others, it's going to be stealing art from artists or knocking off small brands. You know, for others, it's going to be the working conditions of the people making the clothes. Like they're you have to pick what is most important for you. And I just think it's hard out there because everything sucks, you know, or it feels like everything sucks. Yeah, it does. And it can feel, I mean, when I first had my daughter Rose, you know, the blowback on everything turning organic was, you know, really gaining steam. And I remember going to the grocery store and feeling like suddenly I was in like some sort of video game or like, you know, (laughs) know, TV show where now I'm tasked with finding the few items that weren't going to poison my child and give her cancer in this sea of like, you know, quasi supposedly supposed to feed us food items. Like it was really like panic fucking inducing, especially when it came to like somebody else, um, and it feels that way with like a lot of things now. And it's, it's really, it's just, I don't know how to get away from it. Um, I don't know what the answer is. I love that you're doing this, you know, podcast and like educating people about it. I mean, definitely. Um, yeah, it's just, it's hard. It's hard. It's really, really hard. And I know that people hear things like this and they start to panic. And I think it's just like, okay, we got to take a step back and figure out like what matters to us most and how we're Mm going to make decisions based on that, which I think is way more impactful than saying like, la, 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 there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, la, 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 and keep going, which is what, you know, I encounter a lot. Um, If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles by embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com.
com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at Republica underscore Unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnic Wear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnic Wear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnic Wear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. Is there a little bit of Italy in your soul? Are you an enthusiast of pre-loved decor and accessories? Bring vintage Italian style and history into your space with the pewter thimble. We source useful and beautiful things and mend them where needed. We also find gorgeous illustrations and make them print worthy. Tarot cards, tea towels, and hand-picked treasures available to you from the comfort of your own home. Responsibly sourced from across Rome, lovingly renewed by fairly paid artists and artisans, with something for every budget. Discover more at thepewterthimble.com. Deco Denim is a startup based out of San Francisco, and it sells clothing and accessories that are sustainable, gender fluid, size inclusive, and high quality, made to last for years to come. Deco Denim is trying to change the way you think about buying clothes. Founder Sarah Mattis wants to empower people to ask important questions like, where was this made? Was this garment made ethically? 
Is this fabric made of plastic? Can this garment be upcycled? And if not, can it be recycled? Sign up at decodenim.com to receive $20 off your first purchase. They promise not to spam you and send out no more than three emails a month, with two of them surrounding education or a personal note from the founder. Again, that's decodenim.com. So that brings me to the last thing I wanted to talk to you about today, because I knew you had thoughts on this when you and I started talking about this episode, and that is the email. (laughs) Like, I know you have (laughs) thoughts on the email, so I thought we, and you and I were talking about them a little bit, like, last week, and I, like, I've actually been thinking a lot about some of the stuff you said. So lay it on us. Tell us about your reaction to the email. The blowback against small business, it's like this one really got me mm-hmm. because it, it, it is so um, narrowly viewed as to be like obscene. It's just like, oh, you know, small businesses could be bad people too. People could be bad people. Just it doesn't matter if they own a business or not. You know, employees can be bad people. Mm-hmm. Employees could take some tank someone's company on purpose or whatever. But like, if we do not turn back to getting things in the hands of individuals and small businesses are small conglomerates of individuals, We have a situation on our hands worldwide where, like, when banking started out, there was, who knows, 25, 50 worldwide banks. There's five now. It looks like there's that many banks, but there's not. They all are, like, umbrella shell companies. Same things with airlines. Mm -hmm. Same things with certain fashion companies. Um, And the more we allow these, like corporations to just buy up all these resources and all these other companies we are creating like um like countries that don't exist like borderless countries with rulers who are just ceos with deep pockets who can influence everything none of us voted for them mm-hmm. none of us can take them out of their position and the only way to do that is to support worker rights, is to support small business, is to spread the wealth around, or we're all going to be, like, super screwed. So, like, I get that, like, you're like, I don't want to buy a pair of denim jeans even from a small maker because I'm still buying stuff and I'm being charged this much money or I'm contributing to, you know, those jeans eventually going into a landfill or something somewhere. But it's like, you have to look globally. You have to look at the bigger picture. We have to start taking like the power back from Mm -hmm. these massive corporations. And if somebody has a better solution, how to do that, you could tell me. But the fact is that same person that wrote the email is going to turn around and go buy something, something. Maybe it's an apple. Maybe it's, you know, who the fuck knows plane ticket or paper for her printer or whatever. You know what I mean? But like, 
It is in the choices that we make with the dollars we spend and in the support of things like unions and small businesses that we start to create equity and equality for people. Yeah, absolutely. I I think of food actually an awful lot um, because here's something that nobody can afford avoid buying, right? Unless you live in a farm and you only eat what you grow. And I bet that's like at most 1% of the close horse listening base, right? If it's even 1%. The reality is that here in the United States, more than half of groceries that are sold every year are sold by Walmart. Walmart has cornered the grocery market. And you know what they do now? They control the prices that farmers get paid for food. Yeah. Right, because nobody gets paid in the Walmart chain. Exactly, no one. Except for the Waltons, yeah, they have been historically known to pay women less for the same jobs across the board. Um, They uh, fix their um, and multiple corporations do this. They took over all the jobs and then fix it so that. They are offering like 38-hour work weeks, right? Mm-hmm. So that legally they're under the 40-hour work week and don't have to contribute to like things like healthcare. Exactly, exactly. And they actually like in their onboarding packets for new hires and stores, they include information about how to apply for SNAP and other public benefits because they're not paying people enough to survive. So our taxpayer dollars are subsidizing their ability to underpay their staff and give fat, fat... Uh, checks to like their executives and to the Waltons. And at the same time, we think we're getting a good deal on all the groceries they sell. But really, like I said, we're paying tax money to support those low, we're subsidizing the low prices of Walmart, I guess is what I'm saying. And, you know, I understand depending on where you live, Walmart is literally your only grocery store option, like because they have decimated the, the independent grocery store landscape as well with their low, low prices that are built on an illusion. And it's not just that. They're like the only employer. So their people are shopping at them because they can't afford to shop anywhere else. Exactly, exactly. And it has these like large ripple effects. So like, I don't know about you, but I'm lucky because I live out in the country and we actually have a couple independently like locally owned grocery stores here. And we also have farmer's markets where we can buy directly from the farmers, right? I am literally live in the middle of like five cornfields right now. You know, like it's right here. And so we can buy our groceries locally. And I'm going to tell you, the prices are not so high that we can't afford food. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that we need to, the, the deals that you get at Walmart, and I'm using food as an example, are not like exponentially better than you're getting anywhere else at this point, because now Walmart has reached a point where they can not only get away with having us subsidize their employees' lives because they underpay them, they also now could raise prices because they're the only game in town. And this is what has happened with clothes, with electronics. Why are iPhones like $2,000 or something? And they only last like a year or two. Like there are a million examples here where all the competition went away and now they can charge us whatever they want. And it's not a deal anymore anymore, you know? Um, and I, yeah, that's why I am just like, oh, we have to, we have to stop looking for purity and start thinking for, looking for things that have actual immediate. I mean, it's literally to the point, um, you know, these like corporate dictatorships where Elon Musk, who, 
Um, <laughs> I know he's he's so gross. To everything so about gross. him is so gross. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he literally like decided to take it upon himself to impact the war in Ukraine. He like cut out communications through his satellites and screwed up a bunch of like drone messaging or whatever. And I forget whose side he was on, but it doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter because it's not okay. No one human being who was not elected for shit should have, I mean, it is like corporate dictatorship and it is happening across the board. And it is, I mean, the unions in this country have fallen by the wayside. I mean, it's, you know, it's coming. And quite honestly, you know, when the industrial revolution hit, people weren't prepared for that, right? And it it became a fight because, and, and, and we screwed it up, you know? There was an opportunity during the Industrial Revolution for us as humans to make life easier, healthier, more profitable for all of humanity with industry, right? Mm-hmm. To, to create an equality of sorts. And that's what the unions were fighting for. Take the, you know, money out of the hands of like these titans of industry and spread it around to their workers and safety and not having children work any longer and those things. Yeah. And some of it, some of it was achieved and we've backdialed on some of that. And then in the seventies, all of a sudden they just started moving all our industry overseas because the unions were getting too powerful. And it's like right now with AI, we have that opportunity again. Like Absolutely. we as humanity have the opportunity to have forethought and foresight and say, here's this powerful tool. Who are we going to make it work for? Are we going to make AI work for us, get the fucking plastic out of our oceans, you know, make life easier for vast, you know, quantifiable areas of the globe and for humanity? Or are we going to allow AI the way we did with the Industrial Revolution actually put a bigger gap between the haves and the have-nots because that's what's happening. That's what's happening Mm -hmm. when we allow AI to come in and start taking over jobs of people like copywriters and graphic designers. And like, if you think it's not happening or if people think this is some sort of like hysteria call, go on Instagram because suddenly over the past two or three months, my feed is full of ads of how to start a business using AI. Oh my God, I know. Creating logos and design work for people using AI and just take this person's online course. And you know what? It's gross. It's not okay. (laughs) It's not okay. There's like this ad that keeps coming on when we're watching The Crown that is for uh, some AI platform. And it's like people using AI to write a film script and people using AI to like do their chemistry homework and all this other stuff. And I'm just like, no, guys, this isn't how, this isn't good. This is not good. No matter how attractive the people in this ad are or how nice the music is, like this is a bad thing. You know, and- it's, it's been settled a long time ago. It's called plagiarism. <laughs> and copyright and trademark theft 
Mm -hmm. And they're using technology advancements to get around things that have long been held as things that are not okay to do. Yeah. The basic tenement remains. It's not okay to do these things. And it's making our like population stupider. Right? I don't want to pay $65,000 for my kid to go to college for a year, for them to put a couple prompts into an AI chat GPT and spit out a term paper that a month from now, they wouldn't even be able to tell me what the subject was about. Whew, I mean, it's, how's it's, that it's true. I know. No, I mean, I think about these things too, for sure. Like it definitely is on my mind because once again, going back to like the human element of it all, like you know, learning and creating is all about taking and learn, like taking experience and knowledge that you've gained and processing it all in your brain and turning it into something else. And I think that AI skips that part where you learn things and you mix it up with what you already knew and you, it, it, you, you, you generate something new. Right. And I think it, it concerns me the long-term implications because why should we go to school anymore? If, if, if we're just going to use AI, why should we make art anymore? And like, why should we even buy things? Like, here's the thing, learning, creating, these are like life's simplest pleasures, actually. And it's like ripping them away from us. And to me, it feels like it's so that we buy more shit. If I put on my tinfoil hat, that's where it goes for me. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of upsetting things out there in the world. And so I understand people's like urge to like look away but for me like learning and creating like if what else is there in life what else is there yeah. like bettering yourself and trying to better the people's lives around you through like volunteerism and donation and work and like you know it's like I truly believe that we're all put here on earth to lead our own path. You know what? My skill set is art, but you know what else I can do? I can go volunteer. I can do this. I can do that. Like we can all like deserve to use our skill sets, but we also really deserve to use our consciousness to try to improve whatever it is we can improve. All right. Well, I had such a good time talking with you today, Erin, and I'm so glad that you shared all of your like expertise and everything with us. Um, do you have any like final thoughts or final wisdom you want to leave with everyone? Um, I don't know if I have any final wisdom except to say like, don't beat yourself up and don't let other people beat you up. You know, we all just do the best that we can do at any given moment, you know? Um, and other than that, mm -hmm. I am a huge supporter of women and artists. And if any of your listeners out there or any of the above, I do business planning and I do graphic design and I've rolled through multiple different fields. And if anyone needs advice, feel free to hit me up. That's so nice of you. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have all your contact info and everything in the show notes. Thanks to Aaron for spending a few hours talking with me. It was so much fun. If you would like to take Erin up on her offer of guidance, et cetera, you know, drop me an email and I'll connect you with her. I don't really like want to put her email address like on the show notes. It feels weird to me. Um, in the meantime, 
You can find her on Instagram, although warning, she doesn't update it often, and I know she wants me to tell you that. Um, but on Instagram, you can find her as the Erin Cadigan. And among the many things that she does, she created a Grateful Dead tarot deck, and it is so amazing. You can see that on Instagram. And of course, you can see her print work by checking out the Hippie Shake. Also, of course, thank you to Dustin for sitting down with me too. This is like two amazing guests in one week. What a blessed occasion. <laughs> you know, it has felt, and I know you feel this as well, it has felt as if we have been at a turning point for so long. Like what we do now can change what happens next. And maybe other generations have also felt this way. In fact, I'm sure they felt that way, but right now we're dealing with climate change and multiple wars and genocides across this world, an ongoing pandemic, the prospect of another Trump presidency, the plastic pollution crisis, widening wealth inequality. I mean, that's just the beginning of the list of issues that keep me up at night right now. It feels like, no, it doesn't feel, it actually is. Now is the time when what we do affects more than ever what happens next. And it can be hard to feel hopeful, hard to see how we can do anything to change the course we're on right now. And I'm gonna tell you this week, I was definitely feeling that hopelessness and frustration and, and anger so much. I just felt like people, I was encountering people across social media who were just like, who cares? Everything is fucked. Who cares? I'm resigned to this fate and I'm just going to live my life the best I can. And that is unfortunately not where we can be right now. I'm reminded of an essay by science fiction writer Octavia Butler. She wrote some really incredible books that all contain this like essence of communities, communities that formed in the face of really dystopic, apocalyptic situations. This is where they found their support and their strength and their hope. In 2000, she wrote an essay for Essence called A Few Rules for Predicting the Future. You should all give it a read. It's not very long, and I think it will help you feel some hope. I'm going to share it in the show notes. She starts this essay by sharing an encounter with a student. So do you really believe that in the future we're going to have the kind of trouble you write about in your books? A student asked me as I was signing books after a talk. The young man was referring to the troubles I described in the parable of the sower and parable of the talents, novels that take place in our near future of increasing drug addiction and illiteracy, marked by the popularity of prisons and the unpopularity of public schools, the vast and growing gap between the rich and everyone else, and the whole nasty family of problems brought on by global warming. I didn't make up the problems, I pointed out. All I did was look around at the problems we're ne neglecting now and give them about 30 years to grow into full-fledged disasters. Okay, the young man challenged. So what's the answer? There isn't one, I told him. No answer? You mean we're just doomed? He smiled as though he thought this might be a joke. No, I said. I mean, there's no single answer that will solve all of our future problems. There's no magic bullet. Instead, there are thousands of answers, at least. You can be one of them if you choose to be. Several days later, by mail, I received a copy of the young man's story in his college newspaper. He mentioned my talk, listed some of my books, and the future problems they dealt with. Then he quoted his own question. What's the answer? 
The article ended with the first three words of my reply, wrongly left standing alone. There isn't one. It's sadly easy to reverse meaning. In fact, to tell a lie by offering an accurate but incomplete quote. In this case, it was frustrating because the one thing that I and my main characters never do when contemplating the future is give up hope. In fact, the very act of trying to look ahead to discern possibilities and offer warnings is in itself an act of hope. Butler goes on to talk about how we have to understand history. We have to study history in order to understand how things can play out and how we can change them. That there are patterns to humanity. And when we educate ourselves, when we truly see these patterns, we really can create different outcomes. She also points out that there was a time when basically everyone assumed we would all die as the result of a nuclear war, the end result of decades of the Cold War. Kids had nuclear bomb drills at school. People with the means were building fallout shelters under their homes. They were stocking them with like years worth of canned food and iodine pills. And then in the late 80s, That wasn't the big looming fear anymore. Younger millennials and Gen Z, they don't even know the world that kids of the 60s, 70s, and 80s knew. That constant fear of nuclear war that filled your nightmares. I am on the younger side of people who kind of remember the Cold War, who lived within it, and I had regular nightmares about nuclear war. If you've never read the book Generation X by Douglas Copeland, which was like one of my favorite books as a teenager, highly recommend it uh, because, I mean, among many things, there are a lot of great stories in there and they really make you think. In fact, now I kind of want to reread that book and it's it's an easy read, but it's a thoughtful read. Um, the threat of nuclear bombs, of nuclear war, of the end of everything quite suddenly and out of our control That everlasting fear is built into just about every page, and it feels like a fantasy at this point because we don't live in that world anymore. In her essay, Butler talks about how college students born in the 1980s are shocked when she tells them about that fear of nuclear annihilation. They think it sounds preposterous. Well, imagine if future generations could think that climate change or plastic in the ocean or genocide sound just as ridiculous and impossible. What if we could make all of that seem ridiculous to them because those problems no longer exist? Seriously, this whole essay is a must read for anyone who wants things to be better. I see the hopelessness that so many of us feel being expressed across the internet. I mean, what is there's no ethical consumption under capitalism other than a waving white flag of surrender? It is a sign of defeat, of hope leaving the room. When we say, well, my impact will never be as huge as Amazon, so I'll just keep buying K-cups, we are saying, I have no hope left. It is hard to see the way forward when everything seems too huge, too broken to fix. But I promise we can make things better when we work together. Beyond AI taking creative jobs or fast fashion or even climate change, we have the power within us 
to determine what the future of this world will be. We can't give up. We can't lose that hope. Butler ends her essay by saying, Our tomorrow is the child of our today. Through thought and deed, we exert a great deal of influence over this child, even though we can't control it absolutely. Best to think about it, though. Best to try to shape it into something good. Best to do that for any child. Let's do this. Let's shape this future into something good together. Let's not lose our hope. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. Written, hosted, edited, all those things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. You know the drill. If you like what you're hearing, leave a rating, a review, subscribe, all the stuff that every other podcast asks you to do. But most importantly, tell a friend because that that is how we change what the future is, right? By having more and more people involved. We share our hope. I feel like hope breeds hope. And if we can share our hope with those around us, they too will feel hopeful and motivated to make things better. If you'd like to support my work financially, there are all kinds of ways. You can find them at my website. You can find them in my Instagram profile. You know where to find me in all those places. I also will just remind you that this Thursday, February 29th, Leap Year, we're having our first ever clothes horse webinar, hangout, etc. It's free. There are, at time of recording, about 15 spots left. Um, so go register. The link is in the show notes. Um, and yeah, I'm really excited to see all of you who have signed up this Thursday night. All right, that's all for this week. Thanks, as always, to Justin Travis White for our music, our audio support, and sometimes being a last-minute guest. Bye! Bye! <laughs>